When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm glad you're here for Scripture Study. To all of you who are unshaken saints currently, or those that are feeling shaken but wish that they weren't, uh, and hope to be unshaken in the future, this lesson is for you. This is our third installment in the book of Isaiah, and this is really where we begin uh, reaching an incredible climax. There's a crescendo today. Uh, what we did last week was, was very historical, and hopefully you found some relevance in it uh, as far as learning the difference between apostasy and restoration uh, and being grateful we're on the restoration side institutionally hopefully we're on the restoration side individually as well uh, we talked about wickedness versus righteousness we talked about uh, scattering versus gathering and all those amazing promises we we hung our hopes on the nail in the sure place confident that it will hold no matter what but what we're going to see today will build on that and it's going to become much more personal much more persuasive, uh, because what we're going to see, at least at the beginning, is a, a prose interlude in the middle of this incredible epic poem uh, about righteousness and wickedness and the future of, of, the, of the house of Israel. What happens here, as we said in our very first week on Isaiah, two weeks ago, this is a book of Hebrew poetry. And so there's synonymous parallelism all over the place and all kinds of imagery and uh, similes and metaphors and symbolism and everything else. Okay? It makes it harder on us who are used to prose. Uh, but if that's the case, perhaps today you'll see oh, the beauty and importance of poetry because we're going to start with prose. We're going to be covering chapter 36 through 49 today. And the first four chapters of that, 36, 7, 8, 9, are prose. It's very straightforward. In some ways, it is history breaking through prophecy. And we need that historical context to be able to understand what Isaiah has been saying all along, and more importantly, what he's about to say from this point forward. Once we get to chapter 40, which is one of my all-time favorite script, uh, chapters in all of Scripture, so hold on for that, we'll be back to poetry. And, and with that, back to uh, symbolism and imagery and, and having to think a little bit harder and, and flex a little bit more to try to make sense of what Isaiah is saying. But that's the payoff, because what he is saying is absolutely incredible. Life-changing if we allow his persuasive power to touch our hearts. Now, there's not as much persuasive power or heart-touching in these first four chapters, because I, like I said, it's, it's prose, it's straightforward, it's history. One of the challenges, the way that the Old Testament is, is organized, is we had the prophetic books, and we had the wisdom literature, the writings they're called, and then now we are in the prophetic section, okay, and we'll remain there until the end of the year. But what we saw in the prophet, in, excuse me, in the historical books, uh, you might want to go back and actually rewatch part of that video or re-listen to part of that podcast. It was the one about set, uh, the end of Second Kings, uh, where some incredible history is packed into a relatively short period of uh, or a short number of chapters, and we did meet Isaiah there, if you recall. Okay, it's the middle of the reign of Hezekiah in the south, there in Judah, in Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is his court prophet. 
uh, and he is prophesying and, and helping Hezekiah navigate some of these issues politically with the Assyrian invasion. Uh, so again, you'll need to remember that history. And when we studied it in 2 Kings, Isaiah made a cameo. Okay? There was a piece of uh, the, uh, there was Isaiah squeezed into this historical section. Well, today we're going to reverse it. And we're going to see some history squeezed into this Isaiah material. But the history is important for us to understand. I'm not going to spend much time in these first four chapters because we already have. And if you have two books open before you, one in 2 Kings and the other in Isaiah, you'll realize just how similar, in fact, almost identical they are. So let's dive in and get up to speed with this history so that that all-important chapter 40 will mean something to us. Okay? If you go to Isaiah 36 uh, with half your brain and back to 2 Kings 18 with the other half, here is where you start to see the parallels develop. Isaiah 36 verse 1, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. Compare that to 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. Sound similar? Almost identical. And as you recall our discussion in the historical section, Assyria is this world empire that's focused on world domination, and ultimately they want to come all the way down to Egypt and conquer that old world superpower. But to get there, as they come up and around the Fertile Crescent uh, to be able to follow water sources and be able to survive rather than try to go on a death march through the Arabian Peninsula, what they're going to do is come up and over and, and start coming down along the Mediterranean coast, which means the northern tribes of the northern kingdom, Israel, are going to get picked off one by one first. They're going to keep marching down until the capital of Samaria will fall. And with the loss of Samaria and the, the, the defeat of the northern kingdom, there go the 12 tribes. Excuse me, there go the 10 tribes. It was almost 12 because what's next after coming south through Israel? Judah. And the two tribes that are headquartered there in Jerusalem, they were next on the list. Uh, and as the dominoes are falling and city after city falls to the hand, into the hands of the Assyrians, they, they come on to, up to Jerusalem itself and lay siege to it. And it's only a matter of miracle that's keeping, them from, for keeping Jerusalem from succumbing to the Assyrian onslaught. That's the history that we're seeing unfold in these chapters, these four chapters of Isaiah and, and the end of 2 Kings. Now, if you continue the 2 Kings account, chapter 18, verse 14 through 16, it lets us know that Hezekiah paid tribute to the king of Assyria, uh, massive demands, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. But Hezekiah pays them to be able to pr preserve his kingdom. And unfortunately, where is he going to get all that gold and silver? Well, from the house of the Lord. Uh, so in some ways, rather than let the Assyrians desecrate the temple, in a way they are dismantling parts of it uh, to be able to pay this, this massive payoff, this tribute. Now, the Isaiah account skips over all that and jumps straight to the siege. In chapter 36, verse 2, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Hmm, like father, like son. That's exactly where Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, had been when Isaiah came, checking on their fortifications and checking on their water resources when Isaiah came to meet him and spoke of the promise of Emmanuel, 
a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. And yes, that will happen uh, merely biologically in your day, Ahaz, but it will happen miraculously in the day of the Messiah. So trust in that, and don't put your trust in the arm of flesh. We, we talked about that uh, two weeks ago. In the Second Kings version, very similar, the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh, so a few more details here, from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper field, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. So we see in these parallels, Back to Isaiah 36, 3, Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And in the second king's account, same information. When they had called to the king, there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Paralleling the accounts, verse by verse. I wanted to point that one out, by the way, because last week when we met uh, Eliakim, the nail in the sure place, and Shebna, his, his counterpart uh, that would get torn down himself rather than have glory hung upon him. Uh, these are the ones that are coming out to be able to face the enemy uh, as Rabshakeh comes to lay siege. And as you remember, I'm going to stop going back and forth between the accounts, by the way, because for the rest of Isaiah chapter 36, it will follow the account in 2 Kings chapter 18, almost down to the word. And if you don't want to go back and watch the whole history unfold in 2 Kings, quick synopsis, this is when Rabshakeh comes and starts talking smack. Okay? We got to see Israelite smack talk with Elijah. Well, we get to see Assyrian smack talk with, with Rabshakeh. And, and he's doing it all in the Hebrew tongue. He wants to make sure that the troops on the, on the wall that are, that are there guarding, guarding it will hear everything that he's saying and start quaking in their boots. Well... Shebna and Eliakim uh, and the other uh, court official are worried about that. And so they're telling Rabshakeh, hey, guess what? We speak your language. Uh, we, obviously, you speak ours too. But would you mind sticking with your tongue? Uh, and we'll, we'll go home, or we'll go back to, the, to the, pas- the palace and explain all of this to King Hezekiah. Okay? No need to say it in the ears of, of, these, of these young soldiers. Well, they're trying to protect those, those young ears from the fear that's being instilled in them. And Rabshakeh knows it, so he's like, whatever. And keeps going, taunting them in the language they all understand. He sar- sarcastically offers them 2,000 horses. It's like, maybe you don't have enough men to fight us uh, or enough cavalry. So we'll, we'll, we'll help. I'll offer you 2,000 soldiers so you can come fight us. And try to even the odds a little bit. Then again, you probably don't even have 2,000 men to be able to ride upon them. So it probably is in your best interest just to surrender. Oh, and by the way, don't fall prey to any false hopes on the part of of, uh, Hezekiah and your so-called God. Uh, Because we've defeated every God that we've come up against. Remember, these are provincial deities, okay? Uh, gods of particular territories. But as, as, as the Assyrians have come over the Fertile Crescent, they've, the gods have been falling like dominoes. And, oh, the God of Israel's next. In fact, the God of Israel was last. Yeah, we defeated the northern kingdom. And don't you guys share a God? Two, two, one, for the price, one for the price of two, one God for two kingdoms. Well, uh, you can share all you want, but he's already, he's already been defeated, and so... I don't know how much, left, how much is left of him to be able to assist you. Well, these court officials hear it. The men, I'm sure, are scared, but they don't say a word. They've been commanded not to. 
So they're keeping the poker face. But these three officials come running back to Hezekiah and tell him the, the scary news. Then we shift to chapter 37 of Isaiah. And this one's going to follow 2 Kings chapter 19, almost to the word. In this one, Hezekiah hears the report. He rends his clothing as a sign of mourning, covers himself in sackcloth, devastated by what they're up against. But he goes to the temple to pray. He sends messengers to Isaiah at the same time to alert him to the situation. My political advisors are aware. I'm not sure if my spiritual one is, and it's his help that I really want most. So he sends them the word to Isaiah. And Isaiah sends a message back to Hezekiah. Now, these are words that are repeated perfectly in 2 Kings 19, but they are worth repeating here. So in Isaiah 37, 6 and 7, take a look. Thus saith the Lord, Isaiah tells Hezekiah, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard. That's all they are. They're just words. It's smack talk. So don't fear them. Be not afraid of the words wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Personal pronoun. It's not, he's not just talking smack to you. He's blaspheming me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. His words, and that's all he's got, will be met with some other words, and that's all we'll need. We speak of wars and rumors of wars as signs of the, of the last days. Well, those rumors of wars would take place then. And as a result of the rumor, the Assyrian army would pack up and, run, and go home running, which is exactly what ends up happening. Well, in the meantime, Hezekiah receives another threatening letter from the Assyrians. And I love this scene when he goes to the temple with the letter and lays it out before the Lord. We talked about that in our lesson in 2 Kings. Do we take our problems to God and just unfold them, unroll them before him? Let him know, this is what I'm up against. This is where I'm struggling. Uh, these are my hopes, but these are my fears. These are my, this, this is the context I'm living in. I know you know that already, but I'm just wanting to lay it all out before you. Please help me make sense of this, and please help me get through it all. And that's exactly what Hezekiah does. But miraculously, in the midst of this prayer, God, who's got Hezekiah on one line, uh, puts it on mute to make sure that Hezekiah doesn't hear him, but he's listening, and then calls Isaiah. And he's got Isaiah on the other line, and he says, I just want you to be aware of the conversation that Hezekiah and I are having, because I want you to form the other part of the triangle. I need you to know this, so then you can go back to Hezekiah with the answer. I'm hearing the prayer. I want you to offer the answer. Uh, God always involves his prophets along those lines. And so Isaiah goes back to Hezekiah and says, God appreciates your prayer. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry that I was uh, eavesdropping, uh, but it was, it was by divine design. Uh, and here is the message from the Lord. And he repeats this promise of a remnant. That no matter what happens with the Assyrians, a remnant will remain. I'm so confident I named my son Sheir Yashub, right? And Isaiah says in chapter 37, verse 31, And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So more strength and stability, there's the roots downward. More growth and productivity, there's the fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. A zealous God. Well, zealous and jealous, as we'll see today. Jealous of his own glory, not wanting to share it with other other gods. And not for his sake, but for ours, since those other gods can't do a thing for us. Uh, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will make sure that the, this remnant, this righteous remnant in Jerusalem will know that God comes through for his people. That if we'll believe in him, he'll do things to help us believe in ourselves. Uh, and that arm of, of God, rather than the arm of flesh, will see them through. This, uh, he again repeats the earlier promise. This is now verse 33 through 35. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. And here's why. Because so far, this sounds absolutely insane. An army's going to cross the, the Middle East and, and come bearing down on us just to turn around and go home with tail between their legs? Not even shoot an, an, a passing arrow? <sighs> well, here's why. For I, the Lord says will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Ah, uh, yes, a jealous and zealous God on behalf of his people. I will defend it. After all, I was the one attacked. I was the one blasphemed. This is between me and, well, if you want to keep it on the God level, this is between the God of Israel and the God of Assyria. And I'm about to show him uh, who's in charge, really? Not just of this area, but of the entire universe. On the mortal level, this will be between the armies of Assyria and the armies of Judah. But the armies of Judah won't have to fight. I've got it all taken care of. And sure enough, verse 36, the angel of the Lord went down and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, the survivors, that is, behold, they, the casualties, were all dead corpses. Now, can you imagine? Nothing's happened overnight, as far as you can tell. There have been no marshalling troops. There have been no sounds of war. But you wake up the next morning and look around, and 185,000 of your comrades in arms have fallen? I'd be scared to death. Uh, and glad it's only scared to death rather than actually put to death. Uh, but the king, Sennacherib, is so worried, so freaked out by this, that he grabs the, his army and goes rushing back home to Nineveh where he goes into the house of his own gods, wondering what's going on here. I thought you were on our side. And then his sons come in there to the temple and kill their father. No love loss or loyalty over on the Assyrian side, right? What's interesting here, though, is to picture the impossibility of that outcome. And yet it happened. The Assyrian army's not going to shoot an arrow. <laughs> no, they won't be able to. Better yet, the armies of Judah won't have to. I've got this under control, and God takes care of the whole thing. Now, that is absolutely essential history for us to understand as we move forward now with the rest of the story of Isaiah, especially once we get to chapter 40 and the poem begins again. And to just make sure that it's cemented in our, in our minds, one of the most important things in all of Israelite history just happened during those, during those moments. This is happening in the south, southern kingdom, Judah. They're in Jerusalem, okay? But we can't lose sight of these distant cousins up north in the kingdom of Israel. And it's been destroyed already, okay? This was all part of that, that march across the Fertile Crescent to go conquer the world. 
the scattering of Israel has taken place. There are now lost, 10 lost tribes, and they were this close from being lost 12 tribes. If it weren't for the faith of Hezekiah and the righteousness of at least a remnant of his people, if it weren't for the prophecies of Isaiah and the reassurance uh, and confidence that he gave his king, then it would have been lost 12 tribes and there wouldn't have been a remnant to go out and, and call them home to gather. And so this is absolutely key as far as the scattering of Israel is concerned. The remaining remnant that is going to be the seed that grows, roots downward, uh, fruit upward, uh, to be able to someday go out and gather scattered Israel home. But imagine what it would have felt like to be living in Judah, in Jerusalem at the time. And just thinking we were this close from being destroyed ourselves. Uh, we've got to wake up to, to the realities out there. We've got to repent of our sins. We have to be better. We have to be different. And what has become of our, our fellow Israelites to the north? Now, if that is chapter 36 and 7 of Isaiah, chapter 38 and 9 gives us a little bit more history as far as Hezekiah is concerned before we get back to Isaiah's prophecies. Uh, it's less important kind of globally, uh, big picture, but personally, this still meant everything to Hezekiah, and so it ought to mean something to us. This, in chapter 38, is the story of Hezekiah's sickness. We studied that back in 2 Kings chapter 20. Uh, it follows it almost exactly, uh, and Hezekiah, who's nigh unto death, is pleading with the Lord, please extend my life. And the Lord agrees to. Okay, you want to live longer? Fine by me sends Isaiah to give him that reassurance and promises him an extra 15 years. Turns back the, the, the shadow on the sundial, if you recall. But notice what we get added in the Isaiah account. Uh, in verse 9 of Isaiah 38, this is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. And what we see from verse 10 on through the end of the chapter is this magnificent psalm from Hezekiah. He, it's a psalm of worry that I was this close to dying. In some ways, his experience uh, parallels or mirrors the experience of his people. They were, the, the whole kingdom of Judah was this close to perishing, and yet God preserved their lives. They, he preserved that southern kingdom, just like he's going to preserve the life of its king. But this psalm then is, again, take it individually for Hezekiah or collectively for his, his people, it will be a psalm of worry. We were this close. It will be a psalm of humility. I, I, it's not something I can do on my own. I can't preserve my own life. It will be a psalm of reliance on the Lord. I'm placing my trust in Him. And it will be a psalm of gratitude. <sighs> I made it. If you've ever been really close to catastrophe and you pled with the Lord to preserve a life or to get you through this difficulty, and He did, then you'll, you'll get a sense, you'll know what Hezekiah is feeling. And perhaps his words will reflect some of yours. Listen to them, verse 10 through 12. I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. That's how close I am. My days are being cut short. And here I stand uh, before an open gate, staring into an open grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. 
I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with pining sickness. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. That is a beautifully poignant meditation on death, if you want to call it that. Here is a man facing it and feeling unready. Unready to relent. I, do I have to go across those gates? Uh, President Nelson, who's experienced death more than most in his years as a heart surgeon, calls them the doors of death. And as you approach them, I have a feeling that these feelings will rise within. Ideas of cutting, being cut off, being deprived of something. There is this sense of deprivation. I just want more time. When he speaks of his life being removed as a shepherd's tent. Remember, shepherds are nomadic. And they are following the flocks wherever uh, good pasture might lead them. And so you're not staying in any one place that long. And you pitch uh, tents and break camp very frequently. You probably get really good at it. And so that description, I think, is a powerful metaphor. I'm feeling like my life... In some ways, it's, you realize that in existence itself is, is nomadic. That we're on the move. And even if you spend your entire life living in the same home, I'm a stranger here. It's not where I started. It's not where I'll end. And so even this brick and mortar home that seems so permanent for me is just a shepherd's tent. And I won't be here that long before I pull up the stakes and, and let the tent come down. For those who are in your final chapters, I feel, I feel some of the, the weight of what Hezekiah is expressing here. And I pray that these kinds of words will help you vocalize, put into terms the kinds of things, emotions that you're wrestling with. When he says, I have cut off like a weaver my life, you picture someone weaving this beautiful tapestry, but getting to the end and there's some loose ends that are there that just need to be trimmed so it looks like a finished work. Well, I have a feeling that when we get to that point, it, it, this isn't a loose end. I want to keep weaving. I want to extend this tapestry, but I'm coming to its close. You see the sense of loss of the social connections, the relationships that we've forged in life. I will no longer see man anymore. But what I find most fascinating in this passage, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord at least not in the land of the living. That struck me as I was pondering this this week, because I thought, wait a minute, you're not going to see the Lord? That's exactly where you're going. You get to see the Lord. You get to dwell with Him eternally. What's not to love about that? Uh, the doors may be closing on, on mortal life, but they are being flung wide open to eternal life. But what I love about Hezekiah's sense there, I want to, yes, I know I'll see Him there. And I... I I'm grateful for that promise when the day ultimately comes. But in the meantime, there's something incredible about seeing his hand pierce the veil. Him peeking into mortality and, and entering it. Condescending to be on our level. Beholding God in his realm, of course, will be beautiful. It will be fitting but seeing him enter ours, there is a depth there. There is a, 
uh, an awe there that infinity, the infinite, would be willing to become the intimate and enter our little world. He next says in verse 13, I reckoned till morning that as a lion, so will he break all my bones. That's what I'm up against. This roaring lion known as the grave. From day even to night wilt thou make an end of me. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. So death is the lion. I'm just a frail bird and there's nothing I can do against it. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. Can you picture how... How often he's prayed, just begging the Lord to the point that his eyes are, are weird. He's, he's got a stiff neck. He's been looking up to God so much. His eyes are failing as he says, O Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. And that last phrase, undertake for me, could also be translated, be my security. Protect me. It actually comes from a Hebrew word having to do with debt or a mortgage. Or he's basically saying to God, please be my guarantor, be my co-signer. I can't pay this next mortgage payment to keep, I, I can't pay the rent to stay here in this mortal apartment. Will you intercede? Will you ransom me? Will you pay my next mortgage payment so I'm not evicted from planet Earth? Powerful imagery. Next, verse 15, what shall I say? That really is the crux of Hezekiah's prayer. I'm, I'm facing, I'm staring down the, the tomb and there's no avoiding it. I'm a bird against the lion. So what am I supposed to say? He hath both spoken unto me and himself hath done it. This is the Lord's will. That's why I'm in this situation. So what am I left with? I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Interesting juxtaposition. Yes, I'll go softly. I have to relent. I have to submit. What else can I do? but it will be in the bitterness of my soul. It's not. It's interesting. It's as if he's submitting because he, he can't do otherwise. But emotionally, he's not ready to do it. It's still bitter for him. But what I love about this is God allows him to... It's like God is pushing back against the question. What am I supposed to say? I can't change the will of God. Now imagine God saying, pause right there, Hezekiah. I'm not so sure. Wait, what? You are the almighty God. You are omnipotence and omniscience. I, yes, but I'm also omnibenevolence. I'm the all-loving God, not just the all-knowing and all-powerful. What is it that you want most? Now, at the end of the day, there may be situations where no amount of faith or hope or desire on the part of a mere mortal can trump the will of God when that will is for the best interest and benefit of his children. But there are other times, I mean, in some ways, this is, this is the issue of, of prayer in general and of faith at all. Can we affect the will of God? Can we change the divine mind? And if the answer is no, then why are we praying at all? Now, part of that answer is, well, to change our will. And to go, to walk uh, softly, but also to soften our heart. Uh, it describes that in the Bible Dictionary entry under prayer. And it's an important one to realize. That what often we are meant to pray in hopes that as we're wrestling over an issue with the Lord, come let us reason together, Isaiah has already said on the Lord's behalf, then we can come to understand, okay, your will really is better than mine, and I accept it. 
I'm actually grateful that it's now so clear. I want you to do what you wanted to do instead of me. Uh, that may have been part of what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane with his threefold petition to change the mind of God. In the process, it changed his heart to be able to fully accept it and go from, if it be possible, to that glorious, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Okay, That's, that, those prayers served their purpose in the Savior's instance. Well, it could, it could do the same for Hezekiah here. I'm sorry. I'm glad you're praying. Um, I, I can't change this. It is set in stone and your, your days are numbered and the number is low. And Hezekiah would have been blessed by that as he wrestled with the Lord and came to an understanding and an acceptance of his will. But what I love here, what shall I say? Well, say something, Hezekiah. At least express your desire. Let, for you to offer... To you, for you to sacrifice your will, to place it upon the altar, you have to have a will to sacrifice. I said that boldly, more boldly than I expected. When a young woman was in my office, uh, one of my students, and just wrestling over an issue, and she just kept saying, I just want to do the Lord's will. And the more I heard her, and the more I realized where she was coming from, that's when I realized, you, what you really want is him to make up your mind for you. Ah, and that's an abdication of agency, not an offering of agency. So I said, you want to do God's will? You want to offer your will on the altar? Then get one and figure it out. Decide what you want and then plead with the Lord. He may agree with you. If he doesn't, he'll let you know, and that'll be okay also. But what shall I say? You shall say what you want. You're in the habit of laying out... <laughs> The letters before the Lord will lay out your desires. And what's amazing is the fact that God often honors that. I'll do it your way. More time? Sure. How about 15 years? Can you use that? It actually reminds me of the conversation that Elder Neely Maxwell had with his wife when he was diagnosed with leukemia. And he said to her, well, for my whole ministry, I've been talking and preaching and writing about submission. I guess the Lord called my bluff to make sure it wasn't one. And so I am ready now to submit to the will of God and, and pass on. And his wife wisely said, Neil, don't just roll over and play dead. Fight for this. Live longer. Show God, yes, that you, of course you're willing to submit. He knows that. I do too. But also show him that you're willing to To, to push, to pray, to try, to desire, to have a will to offer. And then come what may. If it be so, but if not, we'll move forward with faith. And they did. And God rolled back the shadow on the sundial for Neely Maxwell, for which I will be eternally grateful because some of the things that he taught and wrote in his delay in root, as he described it, are some of the most powerful lessons we could possibly learn in life. Because they were coming from an extended life on the part of Neely Maxwell. Incredible what's happening here. Then in verse 16, okay, I'm going to offer my prayer. O Lord, by these things men live, by our will and thy will and the wrestling between the two. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou recover me and make me to live. 
In 17, he says, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. That's hard to understand. The New American Standard Bible says, For my own welfare I had great bitterness. That's an interesting phrase. It makes you wonder, is the prospect of death helping Hezekiah appreciate life? I just, I want to outlive the lesson so I can actually do something based on what I've come to learn. I'm grateful for this bitterness. It has been for my good, but please extend my life so I can take some benefit from it. So he goes on, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. That is a beautiful phrase. I wonder if that's the verse that Joseph Smith had in mind when he said that the closer we approach God, the more compassion we'll have on suffering souls. We'll want to pick them up on our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. I love that. Well, here's Hezekiah approaching God, and God is willing to pick him up on his shoulder. We'll see that exact image later in Isaiah today. And he wants to ca and cast Hezekiah's sins behind his back. And again, this is a parallel to the entire house of Judah, that southern kingdom. God is casting those sins behind him as well. I don't want to see them anymore. I, the Lord will remember them no more because I'm not fixating on them. I've cast them away and we are increasing the distance. We're walking away from that, okay? Then verse 18 and 19, For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. Sounds like a little Ecclesiastes there, okay? So don't take that as, as uh, gospel doctrine. He's not theologizing. He's simply uh, expressing his, his concerns over the end of mortality that comes at death. And so he says, the living, the living, that's what I want to remain. He shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. You get a sense on Hezekiah's part, I just want, I want to go on living so I can go on loving the Lord. I want to go on praising him. I want to go on seeing his hand, oh, poke through the veil and, and come into our own existence. Will you allow me to do that? Will you let me live longer? And so it happens. Verse 20 to 22, the Lord was ready to save me. Physically, that is, if it's his will. Spiritually, it is always his will, casting sins behind his back. But the Lord is ready. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life. In the house of the Lord. Temple text, as usual. For Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now, the end of that passage is, is interesting. Uh, right on the heels of this glorious hymn of praise and prayer, as he's speaking, communing with the heavens, he's singing songs in the house of the Lord, as he's describing it. Uh, I, went to, I went to the Lord's house to lay out my problems. I'm now going back to the Lord's house to raise my voice in praise. Oh, yeah, but then there was some, something about fig, some fig poultice that Isaiah threw together and... Uh, I, got, I got better. Uh, and how was I supposed to know? What's the sign, Isaiah? Is there a time, am, I, am I supposed to leave it on for a certain amount? Is it, you know, hot and cold? Which one do I leave longer? That kind of issue. It's a strange ending. And to me, the unfortunate reality of that is 
do we sometimes <laughs> express so much uh, pleading and prayer to God? And then when he actually comes through and blesses us, do we look around for other people to deserve, that deserve more credit? Oh, never mind. I'm good. I got better. And the Lord's like, of course you got better. I healed you. Or, oh, I guess I don't have to use my miracle card after all because the doctors came through for me. That's amazing what figs can do. <sighs> Seriously? Come on, Hezekiah. As with so many things, oh, there may be temporal crutches that the Lord allows us to use as we're trying to fix our faith in, in spiritual things. And I'm not saying that, that the fig poultice didn't do any good. It could have helped, okay? Uh, and that's definitely true of the miracles of modern medicine. Ask Dr. Russell M. Nelson about that. But God can, is behind all of those too. Ask Dr. Nelson about that as well. Anyway, interesting the, this experience. And I'm so grateful that Isaiah preserved it even when the historians that were assembling the book of 2 Kings failed to do so. Definitely a more spiritual approach. We then shift to chapter 39, which we won't read, because it just picks up the story where 2 Kings left off in chapter 20. And this one tells that odd story of messengers from Babylon. Again, it didn't shift from Assyria to Babylon overnight. Uh, the Babylonians didn't poof into existence the moment that the Assyrian Empire fell. No, they've been on the, there all along too. They're just on the rise as Assyria is on the wane. And the Babylonian Empire will be the next one, the next fish to gobble up the Assyrian one. And these messengers from Babylon come with presents, a get well card, or glad you got well card to give to King Hezekiah. And grateful for that, and a little naive on his part. Uh, he, he, he did trust. He trusted God. Good thing. He trusted sometimes other people that he shouldn't have. Bad thing. And in this instance, he does exactly that. And shows all of the, the treasures of the house, whatever's remaining after paying tribute to Assyria. And the messengers from Babylon, who've been playing this off beautifully the whole time. Oh, no, here to, we're here to give. Huh. And here to take inventory of what we will eventually take. And, when, and sure enough, that's exactly what happens 120 years later. Isaiah, who has a, a good gift of prophecy to see 120 years into the future and far, far beyond, then tells Hezekiah, oh, what, what, who are they? What did they come for? What did they want? What did they give? What will they take? What did you show them? And he see th sees things so much more clearly than Hezekiah did, as usual, and says that was not a good, that was not a wise choice. The day will come when Babylon is not a friend, they are an enemy. And they will finish the job that Assyria started. Yes, there will, there will remain a remnant, that will always be the case. But the kingdom you have done so much to defend will eventually succumb to the Babylonian Empire. And that was their initial act of espionage. I wish you would have come to me or prayed to God in the midst of all of that. But again, it's important to see in that episode, that brief chapter, a preview of coming attractions. We just escaped the Assyrian invasion. We will not escape the Babylonian one. And here's Isaiah caught between, living within one, but spiritually living within the other and foreseeing it. Physical eyes against the Assyrians, spiritual eyes against the Babylonians. And no wonder Nephi, who is living during the Babylonian invasion, 
is turning to Isaiah for guidance, for comfort, for reassurance, for instruction. How am I supposed to navigate this? You helped Hezekiah, please help me. And Isaiah does. That's where we get to Isaiah chapter 40. And if there were ever a, a chapter that needs to be set to music, it's this one. Thankfully, Handel did. And the opening words, opening verses of Isaiah 40 are among the opening songs of Handel's Messiah. The, in fact, I'll say this. I hope that you'll pause this video long enough. Let me explain it first. And once I explain the first two verses of Isaiah 40, will you pause and go look up online Handel's Messiah and listen at least to comfort ye my people and every valley shall be exalted. Those are the verses that, that this chapter begins with and they're absolutely glorious. But I want to set the stage so that listening to that song will be the spiritual experience it needs to be. It probably already is just emotionally and, and uh, spiritually because of the power of the music. But add the mind and understand what's happening here and this will be, you will hear things and feel things in that music that you never have before. Because here's why, we are shifting back to poetry from the, from the prose. Now that makes the shift absolutely obvious. Okay, at least if you're reading in the original or looking at a study Bible that has the poetic lines marked out. Something's different here. Yeah, it is. Much more symbolic, much more infused with imagery. We're back to the old Isaiah we came to know and love, or at least came to hope to know and want to love. But where does he go from here? Because during that interlude, Israel has been scattered and defeated. During that interlude, Judah and Jerusalem almost came to an end. During that interlude, there was a wake-up call. And we almost didn't make it. And again, that same psalm of, of hope and fear and praise and, and relief from Hezekiah describes what everybody's feeling in the whole kingdom. We made it only by the grace of God. We've got to be better it was our sins that brought this upon us. It was the sins of the northern kingdom that led to its absolute destruction. It, that almost happened to us. And God, I am sorry. I'm sorry for every bad thing I've done. I'm, I could have, you could have taken me right then. That could have been my moment to pay the piper and you gave me another chance. But I am sorry. This is a moment of deep, deep introspection of broken hearts and contrite spirits and, and offering them to God and I'm sorry for every wrong thing I've ever done. Now what could God say? What could he tell Isaiah to say to the people in this all-important moment when they've come to their senses? What would he say if Israel were still here to hear them, to hear him? Would it be, I told you so? Because here's the issue. The first 35 chapters of Isaiah that we spent two weeks on was heavy, heavy on justice and a little more light on the mercy. I mean, that, yes, the mercy was held. There will be days of restoration to offset the apostasy. There will be days of gathering to reverse the scattering. But in the moment, those are so far away. What about in the moment? And 
like I said, those first 35 chapters are so heavy. We're always trying to prove contraries. God is both justice and mercy. But it was definitely, the, the scales were skewed in the direction of justice, those first 35 chapters. Remember chapter 1, he lays it out, his case against Israel. You're blowing it. He raises these burdens, not just against Babylon, and Judah and Israel were a little too Babylonian, spiritually speaking, themselves but burdens of woe to all these other surrounding kingdoms that are going to get picked off like dominoes before the Assyrian Empire as well. It is warning. It is caution. It is call to repent. And in the north, they didn't do it. Despite Isaiah and Micah's efforts in the south, despite Hosea's and Amos's efforts in the north, none of it worked. And it barely worked in the south. So I could picture Isaiah taking the microphone back after this brief interlude with history unfolding and taking the mic and saying to his audience, you got what you deserved. You brought this upon yourself. You reap what you sow. Welcome to the law of the harvest. You made your bed, now lie in it and deal with your own destruction because that's what justice demands. He could have said exactly that. I told you so. Which is what makes his actual opening words breathtakingly beautiful. Because there isn't any of that. Instead, the first word out of the prophet's mouth is comfort. I'm sorry for everything you've gone through, even though you brought it upon yourself. In fact, I'm not even going to mention that part. You already know. And so what do I do now? I'm not here to rub salt into your wounds. I'm here to pour in wine and oil. Are you okay? Do you still see a future ahead of you? One that can be glorious? Can I comfort you? In fact, what he's calling for is that everyone comfort them. Because what he's saying here, let's read it, okay? Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably, which could be translated tenderly, kindly. The actual Hebrew just says, the literal translation is to the heart or to the inner person, the deepest part of ourselves. Speak that way. Speak in that direction. Speak to the soul of these sufferers and comfort them. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, these survivors, this righteous remnant that remains. Cry unto her that her warfare... Wait a minute, I didn't think there was warfare. They didn't have to fight. Oh, they've been fighting the natural man all this time. Often losing, occasionally winning. But her warfare, other translations, her hard service, her forced labor, her slavery, it's all accomplished. That her iniquity is pardoned. Tell her that. That's comfort. That's tenderness. That's kindness. Tell to the deepest part of Jerusalem that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You've suffered enough. So I'm not here to, to teach you one more lesson. You've learned, or you're at least in the process of learning. 
And so what am I going to do from this point forward? I'm here to comfort you. In fact, that word, the way it appears in the Hebrew, the conjugation of the, of the verb, it means to console, to be moved with pity, to have compassion, fellow suffering, that's what compassion is. That verb appears all over the place in Scripture. It's even poorly translated elsewhere when it says that God repented. Oh, I'm not going to punish the people after all. I'm repenting. That, that's, uh, that's horrible. It's like God made a mistake. No. The people are the ones that need to repent. But what verb in the Hebrew is behind that? It's that God wants to comfort them. So I'm not going to punish you as intended or as warned after all. I have compassion. I will console you instead. I feel sorry for what you're going through. And I hope that you, it just helps you feel sorry enough to change. But that's what he's doing here. Actually, it's what he's asking us to do here. Because the form of the verb, again, the way it's conjugated, it's in the command form and it's in the plural. So he's not just saying, I, God, a God of comfort, am here to offer you this noun, this comfort. No, it's going to be a verb. Comfort is what needs to happen. And I'm not the one doing it. Oh, I will be behind the scenes, believe me. But it's a command verb. It's in the imperative And it's to, plural, comfort ye my people. That blows me away. He's saying to Isaiah, and through Isaiah to everyone else, this is not the moment for you to say, I told you so. I mean, if I'm not saying it, you definitely shouldn't. You have no place to. I want you instead. In fact, I command you instead to comfort my people. And comfort ye, ye is the plural form of you. Uh, in regular English, we don't have a good word for this. Uh, we sometimes just say like, you guys, which uh, just sounds too gendered or too informal or just, I don't know, poor. The South, on the other hand, the glorious Southern states, uh, speak of y'all. And that's, that's a great term. In fact, if you really get into your Southern dialect, it's all y'all. Uh, and so you all... Isn't, it doesn't feel plural enough. And so when, often when you see ye in Scripture, it's the all y'all. All of y'all. Uh, everybody you can think of. I need all hands on deck here. And so when the Lord is saying, comfort ye, I need all y'all to be instruments of my mercy. And to reassure the people who are suffering that it's not too late. That God is merciful, has pardoned your iniquity. And wants to bring you home. And then one more detail before you pause me and listen to some incredible tenor out there uh, breathe life into this lesson. As I said before, the first 35 chapters of Isaiah are, have mercy in there, but it's heavy on the side of justice. What we'll see from this moment forward, chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66, will include justice, obviously, God is always both, but it leans heavy on the side of mercy. The center of gravity has shifted, even in the midst of proving this contrary. And that's amazing. It has led some, well, many, many scholars to suggest this couldn't have been written by the same guy. That's just impossible. The tone is completely different. Uh, Plus, it's way too prophetic in this second part. So it must have been written after the fact. We'll talk more about Deutero-Isaiah as we go on. 
uh, and that's a scholarly construct. Uh, there may be some truth. We don't know for sure. Uh, could, have been, could other people have been involved in this, uh, in the writing, the compiling? We have no problem with that in the Book of Mormon. Mormon's fingerprints are all over the place. Uh, but I do have a problem of just cutting uh, hard and dried that there's just this is a separate person. And Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters. And then some other guy that claims to be Isaiah, we'll call him Deutero, second Isaiah, must have written the rest because it's just so, so different. Well, can, can we not speak on both sides of an issue uh, without being a, a completely different person? Or when something happens, does that change our approach? Even though I've changed my parenting all the time, but I'm the same parent. I'm just, do I, does, will justice help my child more now, or will mercy help my child more now in this moment? So I'm going to try to avoid a, a lot of the controversy on first or second Isaiah, and some say there's even a third. Uh, we'll leave that to the to the people arguing over it. But if your your criteria is tone, then I'm calling to question your criteria. If there's other things, then fine. Okay? If there's other linguistic evidences and, and whatnot that's suggesting this, then, then I, I guess I can ro ro roll with you. But if it's just, this one's too nice, and the other one was more mean, uh, then I can't follow you. And especially if you're saying there's prophecy here, and it actually got fulfilled. And since that's in, 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 that impossible, then it couldn't possibly have been written before it actually happened. I, if that's your premise, then it, it already provided your conclusion. And that circular reasoning is something I just can't follow you through. So let's, we're, we're going to avoid that for a time. But let's get back to what I'm saying about comfort ye, my people. I have found that on the side of justice and mercy, chronologically, as you're proving this contrary, justice does need to come first. Uh, you see this in Isaiah clearly. It's justice and then mercy. You see it in the Bible clearly. Uh, Old Testament leans in the direction of justice, even though mercy is running throughout, as you better know by now. And next year, as we study the New Testament, it leans in the direction of mercy. But justice is, uh, permeates it as well. Okay? It's just the center of gravity has shifted. And the order there is key. Think about it, parents. If you raised your children on pure mercy, I don't know if justice would ever have a chance to get out, to sneak in a word in edgewise. No, they've had the, the easier of the two, the more palatable, the softer on the soul. And instead, what usually has to happen is children are raised on justice, not overly harsh, nor not unfeeling, but these are the rules and you have to understand it. We're trying to train up children in the way they should go. But when they make mistakes, that's when we offer mercy. Almost as a pleasant surprise on their part. Wait, wait, really? But I thought you said there's this rule. Oh, there is. And we, and we have to help you learn it for your sake. But it's a process for all of us. And so let's give you another chance. We're going to hold that standard of justice, but we'll allow mercy to fill the gap. The guilt gap is now the grace gap and will allow you to grow up in God. Okay? But again, that order is key. I, we see it in Isaiah perfectly. But then think about it this as well. I have found that, well, what's the shift point? When does the center of gravity move? When sin occurs. 
and we face its consequences. And here's the amazing insight. Before the sin occurs, the Lord preaches justice. And guess what? Satan preaches mercy. Hmm, he actually likes that doctrine? Well, yeah, before the sin. Before the sin, he'll preach justice, till, or excuse me, mercy, till he's blue in the face. Uh, he'll say, oh, it's okay. It's totally fine. You can always repent. Do we hear that? He is trying to allow for some pre-planned prodigalism. Uh, and hell, if, you're, if you can get, if God's going to forgive you anyway, then live into it. Live it up. Do your thing. Uh, go be Babylonian for a while. God always brings the remnant home. It, no, no worries. But here's the irony. There's some truth on that part, as long as we're not presuming upon God's grace. But that's what Satan's pushing for. Please presume. Please just put it on his tab, okay? And then rack up the tab as high as you can to the point that, that you, no longer, you no longer want to change. Because once the sin occurs, both the Lord and Lucifer switch. They change their tunes. They, they, they trade their focus. And God, who before the sin preached justice, after the sin reassures us with promises of mercy. Whereas the adversary, who's been preaching mercy all this time, as soon as the sin occurs, he'll never mention it again. It's all justice from this day on. You can never change. You can't be forgiven. You've gone too far. You've fallen too low. And it's God's mercy has passed. And now we feel trapped. It's, I remember when that, first, that thought first crossed my mind and this light bulb came on realizing why justice and mercy need to balance each other out, but why a certain order in that contrary is key. Oh, the switching. Hmm, scary. I, ho I hope that sinks in and hits you the way that it hit me. But again, that prepares us for chapter 40 and beyond. The Lord is changing his tune. And speaking of tunes, Handel, you wrote a lot of good stuff, but you nailed it on this one. And in some ways, I would say that the note, that that tenor hits as he says the word comfort and holds it out is the most merciful note in all of sacred music. To me, it just sings to my soul that I can be forgiven and that God is here to comfort me despite the sins that got me into this mess. The note specifically is a high E. Pretty easy for a tenor to hit. If you're a bass like me, it's, it's at the top of my range. I won't hurt your ears with my own version. But what's interesting about it is the, the song itself is in the key of E. This is its grounding tone, okay? In fact, he doesn't do it at the end of Comfort Ye My People, the song. He kind of keeps you hanging there with a different note because songs typically end on the, the, the note that is the key signature or the key. He waits through the end of constructing this valley, okay? excuse me, this highway. Every valley shall be exalted, every hill made low. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that verse in just a moment. And so it's two songs that are, that are seamless, 
And it's not till you get to the end of the highway construction that the song can rest on that central note. It's an octave below. What we're getting at here, though, is this octave above, this, high, this higher E. I just want to comfort you. He doesn't start there. He starts a little bit lower uh, than, the, than the high E. He starts on, a, on a, a B. And then he works his way down. Comfort ye. And then he just nails that high E. Comfort ye. My people. Sorry, I'm putting you through it. I can't help myself. Uh, I know my voice doesn't do it justice, but the singer you find will. And if you think about what that note is hitting, he holds it. He holds the tone just... In fact, if you look at the actual sheet music, it seems like it should be going pretty fast. It's just this half note, but it extends into the next measure and holds on for another beat and a half. There are eighth notes uh, that, are, that are sounding all along. And it's slow enough that it doesn't feel like it's just one measure for eight notes. It feels longer, it draws it out, it draws out that comfort, and it lasts for seven of the eight beats. Seven. That that beautiful symbolic number for totality and completeness. That's creation. And the God of creation is creating comfort in this note of comfort. Hold it out and then come down and then reach it again. He goes down a full octave to the other E and then just leaps back to the top as he repeats it. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. There is... I'm not enough of an expert in music theory to know all that was going on in Handel's head. But it has its intended effect. If we have the ears to hear, if we have the eyes to see, if we know what Isaiah is doing here, I don't mean to extend this part of the lesson interminably, but I do want that note to mean something. So that as you hear it, Anytime you've sinned and need to repent, anytime you've pled for forgiveness and need reassurance, anytime you've suffered and stand in need of the comfort that only the comforter can give, then listen to God sing these words. Because whose voice is behind it? Ye is the pronoun for all y'all, but comfort ye my people. Now you know who the tenor is. This is the Lord singing to us all. Go out and be a gift of mercy. Be a messenger of the covenant, and it's a covenant of compassion. Go and comfort my people. And this is what will bring them comfort. Verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Yes, that will apply to John the Baptist, and he will do it so well. He will cry. He will sit, make this statement in the wilderness. But the rest of us are supposed to cry as well. And here's our message. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Just clear the way before him. That's what John the Baptist did. That's what the Aaronic priesthood does for the Melchizedek priesthood. The ordinances, that is. It, it purifies us. It cleanses us from sin so that then the Lord can come.
we can be introduced into the presence of God. And notice how he describes this preparation. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We've seen highways mentioned repeatedly by Isaiah. The highway from Egypt to Assyria with Jerusalem right in the middle, connecting people that can never seem to get along, and yet now they do. Well, what about this highway? How's this for highway construction? Every valley shall be exalted. Can you still hear the tenor running up the scale? Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. Oh, it, it, he says it over and over, sings it over and over in that beautiful song. And it's only at, by the end of that that you come resting on that lower E. We reached comfort above. And now we come to rest because the, the highway is done. Think about the heavy machinery that would be required to build a highway through, through mountainous, the ups and downs of life. And the, 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 it's no, it's not, remember the old saying, I'm not always on the straight and narrow, but I try to cross it as, as often as I can. <laughs> Was that uh, Jay Golden Kimball? I can't remember. But the idea is take the mountains and bring them down. Take the valleys and bring them up. It's almost like just kind of cut the mountain across the top and then flip it over so it fills the valley next to it. And now what do you have? You have level ground and that's going to be so much easier to cross. Uh, we're not going switchbacks up a mountain. Instead, now the crooked can be made straight. And let's grade this thing so it's not some gravel road that we have to go 10 miles an hour on. Let's take the rough places and make them plain. Let's make them smooth. Oh, some nice fresh asphalt. And as a result, what do we have? We've got the Audubon. <laughs> And we're going to be able to come as quickly as possible. Better yet, the Lord is going to be able to come quickly, which is what we should all be praying for. This is preparing the world for the second coming of Christ. And that's our job, House of Israel. That's our role, righteous remnant. And so as we prepare the way for the Lord, we're all John the Baptists now, we're all Elias's, and we are trying to make it possible for him to come as quickly as possible. And so we sing. Every valley shall be exalted. There's no greater message of comfort than the coming of our King. So pause here and go find a, a video or a, a song and listen to Comfort Ye My People and every valley shall be exalted. I'll be here waiting for you when you, when you come back. Did you do it? <laughs> if not, please take advantage of the opportunity. And I promise that if the right information is in your mind, that I, I hopefully was able to explain, and the right spirit is in your heart, that song can bring on a life-changing realization of the mercy of our Redeemer. I pray that with Handel's help, you are comforted because I'm part of the all y'all. And I want to comfort God's people. That includes all of you, all of us. I want to reassure you that you haven't gone too far. I want to remind you that there is always hope. I want to push the devil back into his place and say, quit teaching justice now. 
you had your chance and you didn't. You reversed the, the, the polarities there. You reversed the contraries and you've uncoupled them and only wanted one first and the other second with no interpenetration of the two. You're not welcome here. And so if you are having a voice in your, in your head telling you that you've gone too far and you can't change, that is a lie from the father of lies himself. I testify of God's mercy. I bear my soul that you can be forgiven. And so with whatever ability I can muster, I want to comfort God's people. And you are still one of his people. Is our highway doing its, its work? Can you feel mercy rushing toward you? I love what Alma said when he's in Gideon. To the people of Zarahemla, he had to, he had to drop the hammer. <laughs> he had to be justice because they weren't ready for mercy yet. Okay? Uh, but to the people of Gideon, they were living the gospel. And so he could teach them some of the most profound doctrine you'll find in Alma's ministry. This is Alma 7. But when he's nearing the end of his discourse, he says this in verse 19. I perceive that ye are in the paths of righteousness. I perceive that ye are in the path which leads to the kingdom of God. Yea, one more perception. I perceive that ye are making his paths straight. You got there somehow, probably switchbacks, <laughs> okay? But you've, you found the Lord and recognized his mercy. Don't you want everyone else to feel it? Yes. Then get engaged, get on the work crew. Put on a hard hat and an orange vest and, and start grading the ground. Uh, exalt valleys. Bring down mountains. Help the humble feel like they're able. Bring down the proud to, to a, a level where they can actually be open to the help of God. People on crooked paths, introduce them to the straight and narrow. And people whose lives are pretty rough right now, smooth it for them. Or help them find the Lord who smooths every rough thing. So beautiful here. Verse 5. Once the highway is done and the Lord can come, then this comes easy. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. That's a whole new song for Handel's Messiah. And it's a glorious one with a whole choir singing in. It, needs, it can't be just a solo from the tenor now if all flesh are seeing it together, if, if the all y'all have come to comfort, then yes, this needs to be the tabernacle choir. We all need to be singing the glory of the Lord because he's coming. Elder Maxwell, in one of his very earliest talks, was called, Why Not Now? He said, that day will come when all flesh shall see the Lord together. The day will come where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But he said, you're joining in the praise. It won't mean so much in the, in the day of that collective confession. Yeah, you'll be kneeling, but it's because it's brutally honest that no one's able to stand. So why not do it now? Why not beat the rush? Why not proclaim the glory of the Lord so that all flesh can see that for themselves before the time it becomes too obvious. He then says in verse 6 through 8, The voice said, Cry. 
And he said, what shall I cry? Well, here's the answer. Here's your message. All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. And what happens to grass? It withereth. What happens to flowers? They fade because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That's one of the things I miss about my time in the South. It was green. And living in Utah, the green turns brown eventually. And having lived in the Middle East, the green turns brown almost overnight. So this is a metaphor, an analogy, that is going to make perfect sense to Isaiah's immediate audience. Oh, wait, you, you're saying that we are like the grass, here today and gone tomorrow? Uh-huh. We are like the flowers that so quickly fade? Yeah, life is like that. Ask Hezekiah. He knows. He got the extra 15 years. Look around. Ask yourselves. You all know. I spared you from the Assyrians. But you have to learn to trust in me because as fleeting and fading as mortal existence is, the word of God is permanent. Though the heavens and earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away. It shall all be fulfilled. The Lord guarantees it, right? That's section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. Hear that same reminder. So bank on it. Trust in me, not in the arm of flesh. Then verse 9, O Zion, that bringest good tidings. There's the good news. There's the gospel. There's the comfort that you're going to bring to my people. Get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Handel sings that song too. I mean, he, he, so many of his lyrics come from this one chapter. He found a gold mine. But where are we announcing these good tidings from? From the high mountain. Now, part of that is wise because the voice will carry further, right? No wonder we, claim, we, we plant the, the ensign there to the nations. But again, think temple text. From this high elevation, send forth the good tidings that it's not too late for anyone, even those that have already passed on, those that didn't get the extra 15 years, the extended shadow on the, the sundial. We can even do work for you here at this high mountain that will be good tidings to all. It will help you behold your God. Then verse 10, behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. This is, these are symbols of strength, but it's a personal strength. He's not saying, I'm going to come with a strong spear and a sword will I use to rule. No, it's hand and arm, not sword and spear. Behold, he goes on, his reward is with him and his work before him. He's got his own work cut out uh, and our work is cut out for us as well. Highway construction. But what's he going to do as he comes? I love this. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. And then he rhymes it. He shall gather the lambs with his arm. We usually think of shepherds using a staff or a shepherd's crook. Back in the 23rd Psalm, that's not a bad thing. His, his staff comforts me. But even more comforting, just gather me with your arm. Again, no other separate tool needed. It's himself. It, it, he is the good shepherd. He's the one leading us along with his arm. Then he says, and he will carry... That's not herd. Most shepherds just herd their sheep. This good shepherd carries them. And as you usually think of a shepherd carrying a lamb, what do you picture in your mind? I've seen this in paintings repeatedly. 
The shepherd carries the lamb on his shoulders, but not this one. Carry them in his bosom. Oh, hugging this little lost lamb. Holding her close to his heart. Where that lamb has always been. And then the last line of the verse. What else will he do, this greatest of good shepherds? He shall gently lead those that are with young. Still personal, still relational, still intimate. In fact, that phrase, those that are with young, is just one word in the Hebrew. And it's the feminine plural of the verb that means to nurse. So those that are with young, that could be any parent with children, wayward or otherwise. That could be any ram or you that has some lambs that they're responsible for. Because they're all with, they all have young that they are trying to lead. But specifically, what is Isaiah saying here? The Lord has special care for mothers. And to you mothers out there, you grandmothers, you great-grandmothers, I hope you fall in love with this passage in Isaiah 40. Because he's not just caring for the sheep, he's caring for the sheep that care for other sheep. Do you remember when we studied, this would be what, two years ago, so you might not, <laughs> uh, in 3 Nephi chapter 17, that miraculous bonus chapter among, uh, when Christ was ministering to the Nephites for an extra day or for some extra time. Remember when he says, bring all of your blind and deaf and sick and lame, bring them all so that I can heal them. And we understand that part of the story. It's one of the best parts of 3 Nephi. But the way he says it, he says, bring them, there's the third person, and I will heal them, third person, because I have compassion on you, second person. Huh. Who's he speaking to versus who's he speaking about? He's speaking to the caregivers, most likely the mothers. Who's he speaking about? The people that they love that are in need of their care. Who's he going to heal? Them, those who are afflicted. But why? Because of the Lord's compassion. Compassion on whom? On you. You glorious caregivers that are at the end of your rope. You who... Lose sleep, literally and emotionally, because you're either caring for them or you're awake worrying about them. That's true of wayward children, particularly. I just want you to know that God has compassion on you and will bless them for your sake, not just for their sake. And I sense the same principle being so beautifully taught here in this verse. God gently leads lost lambs, but he also gently leads the mothers and fathers too. But here specifically, the mothers of those little lambs. Sisters, I hope you hold on to that. The, the, it's so, so powerful. And we'll see even more of that idea of nursing later on. But go to verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. He'll go on with more examples of this, uh, but the metaphor he's describing here 
You understand who it is that just delivered you from the Assyrians? Do you have any idea who it is that's trying to send his comfort? This is someone who can take the entire, the seven seas, he can take the ocean of the earth and just hold it in the hollow of his hand. Meanwhile, what else can he do? Heaven itself can be meted or measured out with a span. And what's a span? A cubit is the distance between the elbow and the, the tip of the, of the fingers, about a foot and a half. Okay, there's your cubit. A span is if you extend your hand and the measure from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky, that's your span. Uh, you didn't have to have a tape measure back in those days. You could typically get away with just your, what you were born with. And as long as you have a forearm, you can measure cubits. And as long as you have a hand, you can measure spans. Uh, and so when Goliath was six cubits in a span, you just, okay, there, there's a, okay, now we're about nine foot six. Well, that's easy to do with a giant, but imagine doing that with the universe itself. How are you going to measure that? Uh, we talk about light years, and that's even hard to wrap our heads around. The Lord, oh, it's just a span. I just kind of stick my hand out, and eh, it looks about, yeah, from this galaxy to the next. Maybe add a little fingernail there and <laughs> extend it a bit. But I want you to picture this also, and I want to be sensitive here, but imagine what it would look like for God to hold the oceans in the hollow of a hand. Okay, you got that? And then with the other hand, what's he going to do? Oh, I'll measure the heavens with a span. So let me extend my thumb so I just see the distance. And one hand with the... With the the, the, the oceans and the other with the universe. And do I have any idea who God is? If I'm there on the high mountain ready to declare the good tidings, do I have any concept of whose house it is? He's letting me in. He's sending me forth. And I want the world to know. That song, he's got the whole world in his hand. Oh, he only needs one hand for that. The whole universe is in his other. That, that is profound. And again, I hope you picture that in your mind. He then goes on. That was, that was a verse about the omnipotence of God, all that he can do. The next is about the omniscience of God. We've already seen the omnibenevolence of God as he comforts his people, right? But verse 13 and 14. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him, with whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? The answer to that rhetorical question is, uh, nobody. Uh, he is our teacher. We don't teach him. He didn't need any of our advice, none of our counsel. But boy, do we need his. We need to live into it, live up to it. Then he goes back to this concept of just the grand scale of it all. 15 through 17. Behold, the nations, they're as a drop of a bucket. They're counted as the small dust of the balance. Think about that. If you have scales, you want them to be perfect balance. If you got a little dust on it, and if it were me and I was being really, really strict, it's like, can we dust off both sides to make sure this is exactly in even weight? But then for others, it's like, oh, you get a little dirt on a little dust. It's not enough to skew the scales. It's fine. Well, as far as God is concerned, that's the nations of the earth. It's just the dust. You're not even concerned about blowing off one side of the scale. Behold, he taketh up the isles. as a very little thing. 
and Lebanon, it's not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing. Vanity. We went from nothing to less than nothing to vanity itself. It's just, I mean, from dirt to dust to, I don't know, water vapor. It's just smoke rising. That's vanity for you. It just blows away in an instant. But to make the whole world like that, that's amazing. I love what he says. Lebanon, yeah, I mean, because what's Lebanon famous for? The cedars of Lebanon. And yet, as far as God's concerned, that's not even a match. It's not even worth striking the cedars of Lebanon because, I mean, remember when we were making the two-stick fire with the widow of Zarephath? <laughs> not much there. Uh, well, the cedars of Lebanon, as far as God is concerned, that's less than a two-stick fire. It's not even worth lighting. And all the beasts of the forest, that's not even enough for a burnt offering. Whoa. We're talking grand scale. I laugh sometimes at things like crab's legs, for example, that take so much work to get to the meat, but there's so little meat that's actually there. To me, it's not worth it. And I'm like, I think I expended more calories in trying to get to the food than the food actually provided once I ate it. Uh, not, don't, even, don't even waste my time. And you get a sense from God that uh, along similar lines. Like, yeah, don't even light the cedars of Lebanon fire and burn up all of its animals as a burnt sacrifice. It's insufficient for the all-sufficient me. And then Isaiah asks the question. And it's the question that he's been wrestling with all the way from chapter 1. It's the question that describes his, his life as a poet-prophet. Verse 18, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Can you see as a teacher what you're wrestling with? I think about this all the time, maybe too much. I'm always thinking in analogies or of analogies. Now, there's got to be a better way to explain this. Uh, if I'm trying to take heaven and bring it down to earth, then I need to find some earthly analogy that will <laughs> illustrate the heavenly principle I'm trying to describe. And so I'm racking my brain all the time. But I'm nothing compared to Isaiah, obviously. And so Isaiah, that's his question. What can I use? He used a shepherd and the best imaginable shepherd. He then shifts to oh, a God of the universe that is so beyond mortal scale that we can't even envision it. We can't imagine it. I mean, this is the incomparable Christ. This is the glorious God that you just can't compare him to anything. You can't do him justice. Uh, I, I can't think of it. This is, this is Moroni in Ether 12 saying, I can't write good enough to describe you. Just can't do it. This is my uncle, uh, Bill Lewis, saying, I can't design a temple glorious enough for the creator of all things. I think he did pretty well when he made the San Diego temple. Uh, uncle Bill, you did, you did well there. But I understand where you're coming from. This is a, an artist saying, I can't paint something as glorious as God. This is a teacher, and I feel this one intensely. I can't do justice to the lessons that you're trying to teach. Please lift me above my inabilities. And I pray that he always does that. That's what Isaiah is wrestling with here, this here. No wonder the psalmist earlier said, it's the heavens that declare the glory of God. 
It's the, it's the firmament that showeth his handiwork. Let's let God describe himself with his own canvas. And it's a canvas of creation. But then go on, because Isaiah is going to keep wrestling with this. What else can I think of? Well, maybe ah, instead of trying to describe God, let's describe what we use to try to replace him. Okay, let's, let's wrestle with that for a moment. Let's wrestle with graven images and idols and the false gods that we sometimes fall prey to. Because if you can understand how, I mean, if I can reduce that to the absurd, which he's going to do multiple times in these chapters today, then perhaps in a way that will help exalt God because you start seeing his alternatives more clearly. Okay, it's not that, well, the God of Israel is a little bit better than these other false gods. Uh, there's no comparison. So verse 19 and 20, the workman melteth a graven image. And the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that hath no oblation, like, I, I can't afford that. I can't make a graven image out of gold or silver. Well, that's okay. He chooseth a tree that will not rot. It's just one that's going to stand the, te the test of time. Well, we just talked about grass and flowers. Trees last a little longer, but they're not permanent. But we'll do our best. We'll choose a tree. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. So could you at least carve something into that Asherah, the groves? If you, if you can't make me a molten bale, let's carve uh, a, a freestanding Asherah. And we'll have places to worship the, the pagan gods that we've been raised with. But do you see the irony there? You had to make those idols. What, you have to make the god that supposedly made you? Yeah, no. No wonder there's a, one of the Ten Commandments is against graven images. It's the sense of, no, I don't create the creator. Okay, he creates me. Then verse 21, a flood of questions. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Had it, hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's like, did you miss this lesson? Because if idolatry makes sense to you, then then you weren't here to know and hear and be told and understand. Here's what you needed. Here's the lesson you missed. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Do you have any idea who the God of Israel is compared to these false gods that surround you? The seas in one hand, the universe marked out by the span of the other. He sits there on the, on the horizon. It's like God sitting there with his legs dangling off the, the edge, the circle of the earth. Compared to that, we, we're grasshoppers. And for a grasshopper to carve a little oh, God of the grasshoppers, are you serious? Then verse 23 and 4, that bringeth the princes to nothing. Even the crown prince, they're going to become king someday. Eh, no, they're going to become nothing someday unless they turn to the king of kings. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them. They shall wither. The whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. We already talked about withering grass and fading flowers. Here's the same idea again. We're just dust in the wind. So again, let me ask you, verse 25, To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal 
saith the Holy One. You go ahead and try it. Pick your analogy. How will you describe me? Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. This is like Moses 1 that allowed the mighty prince of Egypt to lower himself in his own estimation and realize that man really is nothing, which thing he never had supposed. What did God do there? He showed him everything. He showed him the universe from his perspective. He showed him that he'd made worlds without number, but to him they were all numbered. In fact, they were all named and known. Same idea here. He's created all things and he can call them by name by the greatness of his might. That is our glorious God. So, verse 27 and 28, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. What he's saying there is, why on earth, people of Israel, people of Judah, would you say that your way is hid from the Lord? Like he's not aware of you. He doesn't know what, what's happening. Or that his judgment is passed over. It's, he, I thought he was supposed to come to our rescue. Then why are we being destroyed by the Assyrians? Don't, don't ever say that. Even Joseph in Liberty Jail, where it's, God, where art thou? At least he knows he's out there somewhere, right? These people of Judah and, and Israel, don't you get it? He doesn't faint. He watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. He doesn't faint. He doesn't get tired. Nothing's too hard for him. So trust him and scattered Israel will be gathered. Trust him and the Babylonian, the Babylonian captivity will be reversed. Trust him and you'll be forgiven. And so verse 29 to 31, this chapter ends with beautiful promises. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. You thought he was weak and fainting. No, but he knows that you are and he'll help you. Now, even the youths shall faint and be weary. And then repeat it, another rhyme. And the young men shall utterly fall. Now, that's hard to imagine. You know, teenagers that, I mean, it seems like they are a dynamo. They, they never run out of energy. You just keep going. But I suppose at some point, they finally run out of gas in the tank. So what's Isaiah saying? Yes, they might somehow run out of energy, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And then he illustrates it with a beautiful threefold rhyme that's a decrescendo, just ends softly. The first round, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. The second round, they shall run and not be weary. And the third round, they shall walk and not faint. What a beautiful promise. Reverse them, and what do you see? It's not just that you'll be able to walk. You'll be able to run. In fact, you won't just run. I'll help you soar. And to soar on eagles' wings is what God is offering us all. This isn't, don't just confine this to the Word of Wisdom, by the way. I know that similar language exists in Doctrine and Covenants 89. And I think as a, 
as a kid, I banked on those promises. I remember every time I ran track uh, and had to do the 330 hurdles, I hated that race. I was a jumper. I did high jump, long jump, triple jump. High jump was perfect. It's like 11 steps and I'm done and I get to like hang out in this cushy mat. Beautiful. Run, like sprint things. <sighs> okay, I did the high hurdles, but that's only 100 yards. Even I could handle that. But the 330 hurdles were brutal. I used to tell people, oh yeah, I ran the 200 hurdles in, in high school. And they're like, wait, 200 hurdles? I thought it was 330. Like, well, it was, but I only really ran the first 200. That last 100 and so, uh, yeah, I didn't have much left in the tank. Okay. But I remember being in the starting blocks. And every single race, I would pray, Heavenly Father, you know I keep the word of wisdom. Please help me run and not be weary. Well, it lasted about 200 yards. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's what he meant, only. Yes, physical health and strength will come from living the word of wisdom, but don't confine the Lord's promises just to the physical. If you will trust in the Lord and wait upon him, then you will walk the straight and narrow path and not faint when times grow difficult. If you trust in the Lord, you will run with patience the race that is placed before you and you won't grow weary. If you will trust in the Lord, then you will mount up with wings of eagles. And you'll realize that it wasn't a mother hen, after all, extending its, its wings to gather you in. It was the eagle himself. And you get to fly with him. These are glorious promises to a people scattered and peeled, a people trodden down, a people in need of comfort, while well, Isaiah is doing what he was asked to do, trying to comfort them in, any, in every possible way. In fact, he keeps doing it in chapter 41. Isaiah 41 is this glorious message of encouragement. He says in verse 1, Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. He just talked about renewing strength at the end of the previous chapter. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. You see, this is a lot like the very first chapter. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Okay, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But let's talk about this. Let's work our way through it. He starts verse 1 here, keep silence. Can you be quiet? But then he ends, let, then let them speak. What happened in between those two? They came. They came near. So from your distance, when you don't understand what I'm doing, you don't understand the purpose behind this redemptive turbulence, yeah, you were asking questions in the previous chapter about where, you, where I might be. You feel abandoned or forgotten. Well, those, let, let's, let's pause there, okay? And, and quit your crying for a moment until you come a little closer and see things from my perspective. Once you understand what I'm doing, then, oh, please, speak. But let's come together for judgment. Now, let's talk about this, verse 2 through 4. Who raised up the righteous man from the east? Now, pause there for a moment. He's specifically prophesying of Cyrus. We don't get his name quite yet. We will. But he will be coming from the east, the Persian Empire, uh, eastern reaches of the known universe as far as they were concerned. And he'll be coming from the east to, to conquer your conquerors, to defeat the Babylonians, to help you come back home. This is a good thing. Cyrus will be a Messiah figure. Oh, and while we're talking about messiahs, I suppose Christ in the second coming will be coming from the east as well. So, here's this righteous man from the east. Isaiah layer cake. There's two layers that we're dealing with. 
Cyrus in the immediate future and then Christ in the ultimate future. But who raised them up? God does. Okay, so trust, I've got a plan here. Now notice the description of Cyrus or the description of Christ, if we're looking for types and shadows, in what he says next. He called him to his foot. He gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it? He asks again, calling the generation from the beginning. Then he answers his own question. I have. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Now we're going to talk a lot more about Cyrus as we go along, but that's our first little introduction. I've got a plan. You were almost destroyed by Assyria. You will be destroyed by Babylon. But don't worry, a righteous remnant will remain, and then a righteous man from the east will be raised up that will help you all come home. We studied Cyrus when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah, because he's the one that gives Israel the green light to go back home and rebuild the city walls, Nehemiah, rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel, re-enthrone the law, Ezra, get your, get your people going again, and send roots downward and branches upward and, and begin to, to live again in your promised land. God was, yes, that was Cyrus, but it was God behind Cyrus enabling him to be that, that conqueror that ended up also being a deliverer. Cyrus was a good man, a tool in the hands of God, even though he wasn't uh, one of the people of God himself. And I think that's important for us Latter-day Saints to understand that God will use people from far outside his kingdom to bless the world. I think it was Orson F. Whitney that said, there's far too much to be done for the Latter-day Saints to do it all. So don't be so... Oh, tribalistic or self-centered uh, that we think that we're the only ones out there that God can, can use as instruments. No, he uses all over. And Cyrus would be one of them, especially as Cyrus points us forward to a far greater, more righteous man in Jesus Christ. Then verse 5 through 7, the isles saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near and came. They helped everyone his neighbor, which sounds good until you realize what kind of help it was. And here's that. Everyone said to his brother, be of good courage. Okay, they're encouraging each other, so far so good, but encouraging them to do what? The carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails, that it should not be moved. Now what's the it there? The it they were going to solder, the it they would fasten, the it that wasn't going to be moved. Well, if it needs soldering and nails to make sure it doesn't move, is this something they're building that might tip over? Kind of like the, the false images to the Philistine God tipped over in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, even when he talks about carpenters and goldsmiths, ah, Isaiah is hoping we remember what he said in the last chapter about false gods being compared to the true God. And that if you have the money, you'll hire a goldsmith to fashion you a graven image. And if you don't have the money, you'll find a carpenter who can carve something into a tree. Ah, this is not encouraging each other in the right way. This is not helping in ways that are really helpful. So we got a problem here. But, verse 8 and 9, Thou, Israel, art my servant, 
You're not going to be like them. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. See how he's comparing? There are those that have turned away from God, but I haven't turned away from you. I know who you are, Jacob, Israel, seed of Abraham. We go way, way back. And the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be their God and to choose them as my people, that hasn't been rescinded. Uh, He's reassuring them. You're still in the relationship. I'm I'm with you on this. So verse 10, as a result, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid, if we're singing (laughs) the song that we're so used to here. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. You can't help but think of the second verse of how firm a foundation when you read that verse. That is the verse that inspired it. It's almost every single phrase is straight out of Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. I'll keep singing and you eventually get to the seventh verse, which teaches the same glorious principle. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. This lesson is becoming more musical (laughs) as we go. But that's the promise. That is this hymn of reassurance that needs to be running through their minds and ours. I've got you, so don't worry. In verse 11 and 12, Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. You see, this is all in context of the Assyrian invasion and the prophesied Babylonian conquest. And what's the reassurance? I got this. So trust me, ultimately there will be a complete role reversal. And you won't even remember these enemies. I mean, by our day, yes, if you're a historian, you can think about the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian and the Persian and the Greek and the Roman. But those are all so far in the past. I'm not worried about the Roman legionnaires marching through Utah and conquering. No, I guess we have other enemies. And there is a spiritual Babylon, but the same promise holds true. If I will turn to God, if he is my foundation, it's a firm one for my faith. And I can trust that God will carry me through these last days of trouble and gloom and help me find better things on the other side. The promise goes on in verse 13 and 14. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. (laughs) I know you feel like a worm, and you almost got squished on the pavement by the Assyrians. I didn't let that happen. Even when he says, I will hold thy right hand, two possibilities here. 
Because which hand is he holding our right hand with? We know it's our right, but what about his? If, it's, if he's facing us, then it's probably going to be right hand to right hand. And the right hand was the hand used to make covenants. Here's the covenant hand. So don't worry. I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've made a covenant with you to be your God if you will but be my people. And let's shake on it so you can trust me. The other possibility is let's walk this path together. And I, I, I'll hold your right hand. Now, if we're walking together, now it's no longer right hand on right hand. It's the Lord's left hand holding our right hand. But I think there's some beautiful imagery there, too, because that leaves his right hand, which is not just the covenant hand. It's also the combative hand. It's the one that I reach for my sword with. Most people are right-handed, right? That's why the Benjamites had such a crazy advantage when they were lefties, right? Southpaws that could still fight and sling. Amazing. Anyway, if God's hand, right hand, is available to fight because his left hand is the one that's holding us. Of course, he's holding our right hand, so I, don't, I can't fight. You don't need to. You don't need to. We can actually hold out the left hand of friendship, like the old scout uh, handshake, that I have no weapons. I don't need any. God is my defender. He is my deliverer. Uh, all is well. Then in 15 and 16, Behold, I will make thee a new, sharp, threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the winds shall carry them away, and the whirlwinds shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. This is the rejoicing that comes at harvest time, the feast of first fruits, right? But to think about the way he's describing this, Again, this is the same Isaiah that keeps wrestling with how can, what can I compare to God? What, could I, what analogy could I possibly use to do him justice? And he's trying all kinds of things. And now he shifts to a farming analogy. And if it's your job to go gather the wheat, uh, thrust in your sickle with your might, right? Bring it back to a threshing floor and thresh it so it separates the wheat from the chaff. And then winnow it so that the wind will blow away the lighter chaff. And then you just have this good grain remaining. Well, that's what he's describing. But imagine if your sickle was dull. That'd be a pain. Uh, imagine if your threshing instrument didn't do much to separate out wheat from, from chaff. You've just got old tools, and they don't do the job very well. You ever try to saw through something with a, a bad saw? Or chop down a tree with a dull axe? We don't do much sawing and chopping these days. Uh, how about this one? When it rains, have you ever had a, a lousy windshield wiper? I hate that. Uh, and it just, it kind of moves some water, but it leaves streaks all the time. Or you, the classic is when it moves and you can see the little edge of the windshield wiper that's been stripped off and it's kind of flopping in the breeze. To me, there's something, I don't know, kind of magical about getting a really nice new windshield wiper. Ah, simple man with simple pleasures. But just to see it go and it just completely squeegees it all off. And it's like, wow, I can see crystal clear. I get that sense here to a farmer, like, wait, I got a, a new threshing instrument? A, a sharp one? It has teeth? Whoa! This is some incredible farming technology. Sounds great, right? And yeah, I, can, I could thresh mountains with this and bring out all the grain that I need. Now, this, because of what Assyria has done, it's the ultimate scattering of Israel. But here we're starting to see the ultimate gathering of Israel with this new sharp instrument with all its teeth.
And then in verse 17 and 18, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. In fact, well, what will he do? I will open rivers in high places. I'll give it a long way to flow downhill. It'll cover all kinds of ground and bring forth growth. He'll bring forth fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Again, if you live your life by farming, then the previous analogy is a wonderful one. And if you live in a very arid or desert terrain, like ancient Jerusalem, then this one speaks to the soul as well. You're going to give me... This is the woman at the well trying to get some water out, and Jesus speaks to her of living water. Same kind of concept. I remember when I taught seminary, I'd look at the kids... Uh, yearbooks at the end and sign their yearbooks and you were a great student and have a great summer and all those kinds of things. But I remember they would have their senior quote and the, the one, I think this is my favorite of all time, uh, where it was usually some quote and they'd say, you know, here's this amazing statement and then the, the big dash and Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln or whoever they chose. Some were kind of goofy and they do, do other things, but the funniest one I ever saw was also the shortest. It was a one word quote. And for this senior quote, an old student of mine, he just put in quotes the word give. And then underneath it was that big, that, that, that long dash. And then the source of the quote, it just said, the little stream. And I died laughing as my inner primary child came roaring back with, oh yeah, give said the little stream. We take that as one long sentence, give said the little stream. But if we're putting quotation marks there, then yeah, it's just give. And here the little stream is speaking and giving and giving and giving everywhere. Verse 19 and 20, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shita tree, which is the acacia, the myrtle, the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree. Others translate that the cypress, the pine, that might be the ash, the box tree together. Now that's seven different species he just listed. And remember, seven is our symbol for totality, completeness, a fullness of creation. So you name the type of tree. It's growing. And of course it's going to grow. There's water flowing everywhere. We're going to see when we get to Ezekiel, this river that flows out from the temple and will heal even the Dead Sea. John will remind us of that at the very end of the book of Revelation. But it's already happening here in Isaiah. And so you name the kind of growth, it will be forthcoming. And here's why that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this. The Holy One of Israel hath created it. I mean, no one else could. To have that much growth, that much diversity within the growth, all growing up together in God, that sounds like the beautiful unity, unity in diversity that should characterize the latter days and the gathering of Israel from all nations. We're going to have a rainbow array of, of colors and backgrounds, and it's, it's such a beautiful thought to bring it all together. And when it finally happens, we'll know that only God could pull that off. The hand of the Lord hath done this. But now God is going to turn to the so-called competition. Remember Isaiah tried this in chapter 40? He's going to try it again in 41. Now this is what God is really like. But in case I'm not describing him well enough, let's do an attempt by comparison. 
by contrast. I've been comparing him to glorious things. Now let's contrast him to lesser things like the false gods of the world. So let me introduce you to a few more idols. Verse 21 and 22. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. That's a confusing passage. What he's describing is, who knows your past and who can foretell your future? Who really knows where you come from, which would help define your identity? And who can really show you where you're going, which would help you understand your purpose and your destiny? Do your, do your gods do that for you? Because I do that for my people. I clarify their past and I prophesy of their future. And only God can do that. It's a beautiful thing. Again, there's a comparison there. The wicked world doesn't really help me know where I'm from. It certainly doesn't open my mind to the glorious possibilities of who I might become. For that, I need God's help. Then verse 23 and 4, show the things that are to come hereafter. Again, prophesy, do it if you can. That we may know that ye are gods, since gods are supposed to be able to do that. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. doesn't even matter if it's good news or bad news. Give us the news and if it comes to pass, then we'll know. Otherwise, behold, ye are of nothing and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. He's starting to talk some smack here. This is God taking a a page out of Elijah's playbook uh, and kind of throwing down the gauntlet. And I can prophesy. Can you? Again, this is one of the places where I worry that people that are, oh, it's it's a second Isaiah. I mean, how could anybody talk about Cyrus before Cyrus comes on board? That's impossible. It couldn't be. So some later writer must have inserted it before the fact so it sounds pretty epic. Well, in that case, boy, is he trying to hide his tracks because he keeps talking about the gift of prophecy and that it's true. It, can, it comes from God. There's our seventh article of faith. We believe in the gift of prophecy too. Uh, it makes me laugh sometimes to think, imagine if we lost our intervening history or memory and then hundreds of years from now, somebody dusts off a copy of section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants that prophesies the Civil War in some really clear, beautiful, specific ways. And actually prophesies a lot more than just in the Civil War. But imagine if some, some skeptic that dusted off this ancient document and had no faith in the gift of prophecy, and his premise was there can be no prophecy, so his conclusion therefore has to be this couldn't have been written before 1861. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to date that revelation post-Civil War, and then say, well, it claims to be Joseph Smith. This must be Deutero-Joseph. This must be a second Joseph because he's prophesying things that actually happened. And since that's impossible, it must have been after the fact. And then it just got backdated. That did not happen with Section 87. And I would suggest it didn't happen with the prophecies in so-called Second Isaiah. Okay? Uh, There's other arguments against it, namely the brass plates, uh, that these are being quoted by Nephi, and he left in 600, so it couldn't have been written post-600. It would have had to have been written back in Isaiah's day. Anyway, I won't keep beating that horse, but keep that in mind, because we're going to see a lot of talk of prophecy from this prophet Isaiah. 
and here's another example of it, 25 and 26. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun shall he call upon my name. See, earlier it was, wait, isn't he coming from the east? Here it says he's coming from the north. Well, again, fertile crescent. Ultimately, it's from the east, but to come up and around, it's going to be immediately from the north. So, okay, we good? So here's Cyrus coming from Persia. This is the Lord coming from the east or the north. Take your pick. He shall come upon princes as upon mortar. Some translate that. He will trample them like mud. And as the potter treadeth clay, who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. He's going back to that same concept. Can you prophesy? I can. Can you predict the coming of Cyrus and all of the good he will do? That he'll be trampling people down, but it'll actually be a good thing. See, verse 27 to 29, the first, and that's the Lord we're talking, shall say to Zion, behold, behold them, those false gods. Look at them in all of their impotence. I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. A bringer of the good news will arrive. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor that when I asked of them could answer a word. What God is doing here left everyone else speechless. They can't answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. Great way to end the chapter. Comparing the true God of Israel that uses the voice of truth to prophesy of things to come. Compare that to the the false gods, false prophets, false teachers that know neither past nor present nor future. What are they? They're just wind and confusion. Wind. It's just hot air. That's all it is. And where will it leave you? With nothing but question marks. No exclamation points. Come to God on this. He'll walk you through. And then that crescendos into chapter 42, where let's talk about that comer, that righteous man from the east. Not just Cyrus. Let's talk about the Messiah here and what he will accomplish once he comes. This bringer of good tidings. Well, here's some good tidings for you. 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, this is obviously the Messiah, but what kind of leader will he be? Verse 2 through 4, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. This won't be the loud, boisterous, all eyes on me kind of leader. No, he'll be gentle. In fact, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Now, I brought up this passage earlier in Isaiah where we saw a similar verse that talked about just how careful God is in his judgment and in his treatment of his people. And again, the bruised reed... Here's a cattail that's lost some of its structural integrity. And walking through, oh, you got to be careful. We're talking seriously fragile. But the Lord, he doesn't break a single stem. The smoking flax, how, how hard do I blow on, on, on the fire that I'm just trying to coax out of the kindling? Too hard I blow it out, too soft, it does no good. 
Well, the Lord knows just how hard to blow. He won't blow it out. He doesn't quench. We talked about justice and mercy and the, the timing, the order, as we try to prove those contraries. Well, not only does the Lord always have the perfect order, he always has the perfect balance. And I'm grateful for that because I realize, especially as I try to raise my children, just how imperfect I am in all of it. In the lectures on faith, among the other attributes of deity that Joseph described, he talked about perfect justice and perfect mercy. But right in between them, he talked about perfect judgment. And that seems fitting, since that's what balances the other two. I'm imperfect in all three of them. My justice isn't always just, my mercy isn't always merciful, and my judgment is sadly lacking in judgment sometimes. No wonder I need to turn to the Lord, who's perfect in all of them, including the perfect in balancing. He is the perfect prover of contraries. In verse 5 then, thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, with his span, right? He that spread forth the earth, there in the cup of his hand, and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it. And that's more than just wind and confusion. And spirit to them that walk therein. This is the creator of all things. It's the way he introduced himself to Job. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Do you see what I can do? In verse 6 and 7, he says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thy hand, the right hand, like I already said. I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, what I love about that passage is it's not just saying, I will give you light, it's I will let you be light to people who sit in, in places even darker than yours. When he speaks of the covenant, he didn't just say, I made a covenant with you. It's, I'm giving you for a covenant to everybody else. That's, it wasn't just the gift to Abraham. It was the gift of Abraham to the entire world. In thee and in thy seed, Abraham, oh, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You are my covenant people. Not just because I made a covenant with you but because through you, I can keep my covenants with all humanity. They were there in the war in heaven too. They were there trusting that I would come as sent. They were there trusting that somehow someone would come to them to reintroduce them to a Lord that the veil had erased from their memories. And that's us. That's the house of Israel. That's the covenant people. We are meant to be a light to the Gentiles. Paul must have loved this passage. Paul must have seen, that's who I am. I'm a part of the house of Israel, but I'm meant to shine as a light to the Gentiles because they're blind and never had the chance to see. We can bring them that light. That's missionary work. That's temple work. That is the work of the gathering on both sides of the veil. And the command to engage in it comes from a God who wants us to know him and wants to be known by all. So verse 8 and 9, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. There's his jealousy, the jealous to match the zealous. And again, it's for our sake, not for his. No one else can do anything for you. So I'm not going to give my glory to other unglorious gods because they'll never pass it down to you. I instead want to give, keep my glory from them so I can give my glory to you. Make sense? 
He then says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. In fact, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Another affirmation of the gift of prophecy. Verse 10 through 12, Sing unto the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof, let the wilderness and the city thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar doth inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rocks sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. Oh, this, can you picture these, oh, the sound, like sound waves spreading forth in all directions until everyone is caught up in that resonant frequency and wants to lift their songs of praise right along with everyone else. The isles of the sea... As far as you can imagine, you're starting to sense that every knee is beginning to bow, every tongue is beginning to confess, oh, and more than confess, they're beginning to sing and shout. In verse 13 through 15, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. Now I have long time holding my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. <laughs> but no longer. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs, and I will make the rivers islands, and I will dry up the pools. I mean, back in verse 2, I was the soft-spoken lamb. But here, <laughs> I am the roaring lion. Jesus is both, after all. In fact, part of the confusion when Christ came among them in the first century is that they were expecting the lion when they got the lamb. In some ways, they were expecting the second coming, even though they were there to experience the first. That's the problem. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they expected. They were planning on verse three through 13 through 15 Messiah. He's going to come. He's not soft-spoken anymore. Uh, he's going to destroy and devour the, the Romans. He's going to make waste mountains and hills. But they forgot that would only come after a period of refraining myself, of being still, of not going through the streets with loud voice, but instead just being careful not to, not to break a single bruised reed. And that's the Jesus of Nazareth that wandered the, the streets and paths of Israel 2,000 years ago. When he returns in glory, then brace yourself. It will be a different version. The lion will roar. If you think about, since we've been on a music kick today, if you think about the great hymn from Parley P. Pratt, Jesus, once of humble birth. Yeah, once of humble birth. Uh, and yes, he'll always be humble, but it's, it's going to be glorious when he returns. And the world will know it. If you pay attention to that hymn, it keeps flipping back and forth between first coming and second coming. It's a great, it's amazing how Parley figured that out. Uh, and one line that's particularly relevant here. Once all things he meekly bore, but he now will bear no more. And we see that shift between these versions of, of this righteous Messiah. Next, verse 16, I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I mean, they'll be able to see it now, right? This light shining to the Gentiles. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not 
forsake them. Oh, my friends, we'll be living in ways that we never dreamed of before. As Christ comes to bring a new heaven and new earth, all things new, he's going to be bringing light to the darkness. He's going to be making crooked things straight. I guess he's engaged in some highway construction as well. And we're going to make crooked things straight so that he can come. But when he comes, oh, he'll really straighten out the crooked things. Next in 17, they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, ye are our gods. And in a way, by talking sarcastically on occasion in this poem about molten images, graven images, false gods, idols, he's trying to get them to feel a little shame now so they don't feel intense shame later. This, this, there's no good here. Put your trust in God instead. Then he says in 18, Hear ye deaf, look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things but thou observest not, opening the ears but he hearest not? Now are you as confused as I am? So I started okay. Okay, he's going to speak to the deaf, he wants them to hear. He's going to show to the blind, he wants them to see. But then, who is blind but my servant? Who's deaf as my messengers? Like, wait, what? Is this the blind leading the blind? That doesn't sound good. We'll both fall into the ditch, as it says. Well, when you're confused, look down and see if there's a Joseph Smith translation. And often there is. There is one here. How's this to make more sense of it? Joseph Smith translation of 19 through 21. For I will send my servant unto you who are blind. Yea, a messenger to open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf. That sounds a whole lot better. <laughs> they shall be made perfect, notwithstanding their blindness, with the help of those messengers that can actually see, if they will hearken unto the messenger, that is, the Lord's servant. Thou art a people, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears to hear, but thou hearest not. That is such, so much more clear, and so much closer to what Isaiah was first introduced with back in his visions of Isaiah chapter 6. Eyes and ears and hearts that are problematic, but will someday be changed. Well, we're moving in that direction. The Joseph Smith translation continues in the next two verses, 22 and 3, which says, The Lord is not well pleased with such a people, but for his righteousness sake, he will magnify the law and make it honorable. Thou art a people robbed and spoiled. Thine enemies, all of them, have snared thee in holes, and they have hid thee in prison houses. They have taken thee for a prey, and none delivereth. For a spoil, and none saith, Restore. That's much more clear than the King James Version of that as well. Especially that he's not well pleased with the willfully blind. Okay, how could he be? But they end the ending questions, or the ending point he's making, no one's around to deliver them. No one's there to say, let's restore what's been lost. But that's the key. God is there to do it. His servants, his true messengers, his covenant people are there to do it. The Lord will deliver them and the Lord will restore all things. That's what's going to usher in the day of gathering to begin with. So he says in verse 23, Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord... He against whom we have sinned. 
For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about. Yet he knew not, and it burned him. Yet he laid it not to heart. That's a little confusing after all that we've seen before, but what he's saying there, pay attention. Who's going to think this through and figure this out and hold on to it enough to actually change his result? Here's what I want you to think about. Who gave Jacob for a spoil? Didn't the Lord? In other words, who was ultimately behind the scattering of the northern ten tribes? Remember, he talked about this in our first chunk of Isaiah chapters. Assyrian king, quit thinking it's all you. In fact, quit tooting your own horn because horns can't toot themselves. You need somebody to blow into them. Or in the analogy I'll actually use with you, quit boasting yourself that you chopped down all these trees. You're just an axe. I'm the one that swung. You're just a saw, and I'm the one whose hand is on the handle. Assyria, don't take credit. I was behind it all. And he's reminding Judah of that. I was behind it all. Now, why would he claim, hey, I'm the one that destroyed you? No, I'm the one that allowed you to suffer the consequences of your sins in hopes that it would wake you up. I'm the source of your redemptive turbulence. And if you'll turn to me, I'll make sure you learn the lesson. I'll make sure that it served its true purpose to redeem you. That's what the turbulence was for. And so I do love that, that this part of the passage, especially at the end. Or are you just going to burn yourself and then not lay it to heart? Are you going to burn your, put your hand on the stove and get burned and then go back and do it again? Are you going to return like a dog to its vomit? Are you going to go back to the, the sow wallowing in the mire? Or are we going to do better this time? Uh, as we'll see, unfortunately... Babylon will come, and they didn't learn from their mistakes. They're sinning in the days of Lehi, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Just like we're sinning in our day, too. Ah, but I hope that we can change that so that God can, that the source of the turbulence can also be the source of, of the promise of redemption, which is what Isaiah gets to in chapter 43. Here is a beautiful message of redemption He's explained their destruction before the Lord's enemies. Yeah, the Lord still holds out hope and makes this promise in verse 1. But now, so we're shifting gears from justice to mercy. Thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Hear the rhymes. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine if I remember correctly, the opening episode in The Chosen. Isn't that the verse that the father teaches this young girl destined to grow up to be Mary Magdalene? Now again, that was some creative license on the part of the directors and producers of that show. But what a perfect passage to help someone that later in life would struggle to know that God knew her, knew her by name, would call her by that name because she belonged to him. That's a beautiful scene at the end of that first episode. And I, for one, I told my kids when The Chosen came out, I think that's why television was invented. Oh, such an approachable Christ. Such a real Redeemer. Ah, such a, a loving Lord that you just want to come unto. And that's what Isaiah is trying to persuade us all to do. So come to the Lord that knows you and calls you by name. In verse 2 and 3, When thou passest through the rivers, 
I will be with thee. I was at the Red Sea. Through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. Think back to the Jordan River. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. That will be important for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to remember when it comes time for them to face the flames. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. You understand all that you've been through and all that I've carried you through? Because I'm your Savior. Not just the Savior, but thy Savior. And I love the, the possessive pronoun there. It actually reflects a change that was recently made in the temple, the temple, uh, temple recommend questions. Okay? It used to be, do you have faith in and a testimony of the atonement of Christ and of his role as Savior and Redeemer? Now, listen closely, do you have faith in and a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his role as your Savior and Redeemer? It's not enough to believe he can save everyone else that hasn't fall as, fallen as far as you have. But when you know that he came for you, he knows your name and he'll call you by it. He, he made you so he can fix you. That's what Boyd K. Packer said once about a carving that a friend accidentally broke. He was devastated. And Elder Packer said, it, <laughs> calm down. I carved the thing. I made it. I can fix it. And that seems to be what the Lord is saying to all of us. Calm down. I made you. I can fix you. Okay. I got this. I fixed Israel. I brought them out of Egypt. I've saved you from so many enemies. I am thy Savior and always will be. In verse 4, since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Now it makes sense that we're precious and loved, but the end, that's powerful. He's going to give men for us? He's going to give people for our life? Who might that be? Think about section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The worth of souls is great in the sight of God. How great? He gives two examples. Great enough that I sacrificed my own life for you. You were worth me. When I gave a man for your life, I was that man. And it cost my life to be it. And then the second example of the, the, the great worth of souls. It's worth your life too. If you should labor all your days in crying repentance and bring save it be one soul, it was worth it. You exchanging your life for, for theirs, totally worth it. There are people being given for the life. I mean, those that serve missions, those that serve in the temple, those that serve family history missions, those that are engaged in the gathering, you are giving your life for people that are worth it. It's a beautiful... A, can you think of a better piece of evidence that God loves them and that you love them because of what you're doing? He then says in verse 5 through 7, fear not. I've lost track of how many times he's said that. Okay, reassuring people that just barely survived the Assyrian invasion. It's okay, calm down. You still got PTSD. I get it. But it's a thing of the past. I'm, you're all right, at least for the next 120 years until you, the whole... Judah screws things up again, but I'm, I'm still there for them too. A righteous remnant shall return. We, we got this. For now, fear not. For I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far. 
my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. That's the gathering of Israel. And it's from the north and the south and the east and the west. And who's he gathering? Not just people, sons and daughters. I think too often we think of the gathering of Israel in, oh, in terms of stuff we're supposed to do. It's, our, it's a project. It's a task. No, it, we need to view it in relational terms. Those are daughters and sons, which makes them sisters and brothers of us. The, the gathering of Israel is just this magnificent family reunion. That's what it is. Calling them into the covenant. Next, verse 8 and 9. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. I mean, they've got the eyes. They've got the ears. They just don't know how to use them yet. So let's work on that. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or, on the other hand, let them hear and say it is the truth. I love the end there. Everyone's coming, okay? And as you wonder what took so long or why did I suffer so much? Oh, okay, you want to justify yourself? You want to say that you deserve better? I mean, Job tried that and it didn't turn out so well for him. And Job was awesome, perfect in his generation. The rest of us, yeah, not so much. So do you really want to come and bring your witnesses to say that, that you're, you were justified in everything you did and life should have been better and easier, there shouldn't have been scattering so that ultimately there would be gathering? You want to try that? Or do you just want to be humble and open your ears instead of your mouth and listen to me explain how the plan all works together? So that by the time you do open your mouth, what will you say? It is the truth. You know what you knew what you were doing all along. 10 and 11, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. You don't have to bring forth your own witnesses to defend yourself. You are my witnesses, my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be any after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Jehovah is Jesus, after all, the God of the Old Testament. The only Savior Israel has ever had, the only Savior Israel will ever need. That is true for us. There's no need to fall prey to false gods. The counterfeit Christs that are vying for our attention the images of the world that are leaving the world's image upon us. Leave it behind. In verse 12 and 13, I have declared and have saved, I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? In other words, who can stop it? Who can slow it down or turn it back? That's the puny arm in the Missouri River again. This is a jealous, zealous, incomparable God trying to turn us into people like him. He then says in verse 14, Thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, your, the Creator of Israel, your King. 
Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Now, fairly long passage there, but what's he saying? Babylon's on its way. Give it another century plus, but they're coming. But I'm behind it. The same one that inspired the Assyrian invasion to, to scatter Israel in hopes that they would end up blessing the world. And when they brought, were gathered back in, they'd bring the world with them. I'm behind this, the coming of Babylon as well. And part of that is an act of justice, uh, the punishment of your sins. But part of it also is an act of mercy, because I will let you return and hopefully you, have learned, you will have learned some things during the captivity. By the time all is said and done, your captors will be taken captive themselves. Uh, by the time it's finished, they will be extinct, and the Babylonian Empire will be a thing of the past. I hope the opposition they provided you served its purpose, so that when that opposition ends, you will have fully become the kind of person you needed to be. That's what God is after. Verse 18, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. And here it is. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Again, that's living water in a dead land. This is the woman at the well with Christ coming, offering the waters of life. And what's he said in that passage? That's one of the ways you'll know. I seek ye the living among the dead. That's what the world tends to do. They seek life in dead places. But he who has conquered death will bring life into those dead spaces and help us find who we were always intended to be. That's how we'll know the true God of Israel. He then says in 21, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Sounds like the teenager that's ashamed of being seen in public with their parents, even though their parents have done everything for them. Israel is that prideful, rebellious, stubborn teenager. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of my burnt offerings. Neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. But thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money. That was one of the ingredients to make the holy anointing oil that they used to anoint the priests and the temple. Neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Now, remember earlier he talked about I mean, you could light the cedars of Lebanon on fire and consume all the beasts of the forest. It's still not enough of a sacrifice for a God as glorious as I. Well, here, the problem is, forget Lebanon and, its, and the beasts of the forest. You're not even offering the token fatted calves or lambs without blemish that you've been asked to offer me. What's, what's going wrong here? It's not like I'm trying to overly burden you. I'm not wearying you with calls to incense. That's a sweet savor that should bless 
your nostrils as much as mine. You understand what he's getting at? Why are you tired of honoring the God that never tires of blessing you? Why do we get complacent and lazy and bored? Why do we think that it's... That there are undue burdens being placed upon our shoulders to magnify a calling, to attend church, to go worship in the beauty of holiness. In some ways, God is saying, I'm the one that should be tired of you. But I'm not. Please don't tire of me. Just come. And then again, he reintroduces himself in 25 through 28, the end of this chapter. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Remember, I cast them behind my back. I'm not looking, looking after them. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Now, yes, that chapter ends on a, on a rough note. Uh, why do you think you've been suffering? Why do you think the Assyrians came? Why do you think the Babylonians will come? Why do you think you've been bounced back and forth between rival empires, just struggling for a sense of safety and security for yourselves? It's because you brought it upon yourselves. It's because you've sinned. Your teachers have transgressed and taught you to do likewise. But I'm also the God that forgives transgression. So yes, in the midst of all of this justice, there is mercy shining through. In fact, the way he said it, put me in remembrance. How can we not want to remember a God who chooses not to remember our sins? And if God refuses to remember our worst moments, provided we repent of them, then why wouldn't we be willing to remember God in his best moments? When he has blessed us, when he has preserved us, when he has redeemed us, that is Isaiah's message. And for the rest of this week's study, chapter 44 on through 49, it contains some of the most glorious promises and reassurances that Israel, ancient or modern, could possibly ask for. As we turn to chapter 44, I'll prepare for this. This is a reminder to ancient Israel of their true identity. Do you remember who you are? Do you remember whose you are? Then act accordingly. Verse 1, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. There's your identity. That's your sense of self. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. And thou, Jesserun, that's another name for Israel, hardly ever used, but it did show up a few times in Deuteronomy. It means the righteous ones or the upright ones. That's who you ought to be. So, to thou, Jesserun, whom I have chosen, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring, and they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. Again, in a desert, water is more precious than gold. No wonder Isaiah loves 
water imagery. He loves plant imagery. And here you see plants of renown growing up next to these rivers of living water. Why? Because I love you and I've chosen you and you're my people. Remember recently, President Nelson gave a talk to the young adults of the church and talked about identities and the most important ones of all, children of God, children of the covenant, house of Israel, members of the church. It's amazing who we are. And God is reminding Israel anciently of that. He says in verse 5, One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. Another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Take your pick. Those are all great. They're people wanting to live up to their true identity, so they can claim their true inheritance in Israel, and then spread that inheritance abroad. In verse 6 through 8, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Alpha and Omega, right? Beside me there is no God, and who as I shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from this time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Over and over and over, this jealous God is making sure we know that he's the only one that can help us become what we're destined to become. And he's prophesying of that. Again, that passage, he goes back to this idea of, you're my witnesses. I've prophesied and it's been fulfilled. That, others cannot do that. So don't trust those that have no eye to your ultimate future. Verse 9 through 20, then, Isaiah shifts back to the other side, as he's been doing repeatedly. I'm describing God by comparing him to glorious things. Next, I'm going to describe God by contrasting him with worldly things. And this is where, where Isaiah's inner Elijah really comes forth most clearly. It, it is such, he totally makes fun of idolatry here. It's, if you read it right, it's sarcastic, it's mocking. But before we laugh at something we think we've outgrown, please remember what the Lord says to us in the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 1, verse 16, They seek not to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world, and whose substance is that of an idol. So that's important to have some empathy here, or some introspection, to be self-aware enough to realize this is not just an old problem, it's a current one, and one we all seem to struggle with. I hope that we'll be hurt just enough by these next few verses to change and to realize and recognize I do have some idols in my life and some graven images that I do bow to far too frequently. So brace yourself. 9 through 11. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and they're delectable things, the things that we just covet and, and save up for, or actually don't save, we just buy them on credit and then spend the rest of our life trying to pay them, to pay them off. But they're delectable. How can I say no to that? Those delectable things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. 
Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. A lot of talk of shame here, but it's this idea of reductio ad absurdum is the technical term, reducing something to the absurd so that it hopes it, it, it wakes us up like, that's embarrassing. Now, sometimes that's used against truth, like the people in the great and spacious building pointing and mocking, trying to get people at the tree of life to, be a, to feel ashamed of the fruit. Well, this is a chance to fight fire with fire. And so Isaiah is trying to help people feel a small amount of shame today so they avoid the massive amount of shame later. Aren't you embarrassed that you're holding to false gods that are profitable for nothing? I mean, you had to carve it. You had to molten it. You had to shape it and nail it down so it wouldn't blow over in the wind. I mean, it's a little embarrassing here. In verse 12, the smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. Isaiah is still mocking the makers of these false gods. I mean, there they are. That smith seems pretty strong. I mean, to be a blacksmith or a goldsmith and you're hammering out metal, that's pretty, that's pretty buff. But he, he still gets hungry and he has to eat. He still gets tired and he has to rest. He gets thirsty, needs to drink water. That's the creator of your God? Hmm. Uh, how could a weak human make something greater than himself? Now, ironically, we figured out how to do that now with technology which makes us even more prone to the idolatry that Isaiah is condemning here. I mean, look at all the stuff that we can get to do our work for us. And now I don't, my strength doesn't fail as often as the ancients. Well, again, occupational hazard of living in the last days. It lulls us into this false sense of self-sufficiency that we're good. We got this now, but can it really approach the power of God? The only true God? Not even close. Well, if that's how much fun Isaiah has with the graven images, he ha even has more fun with the wooden ones. Okay? So in 13 and 14, he says, The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass. And he maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Man, all this effort just to make a homemade God? You carpenters. Uh, a God who can measure the universe with a span, and yet you have to pull out tape measure and go, yeah, we'll make the God about this, this tall, maybe about this wide. How much, how much material do we have to work with? Come on now. In verse 15, Then shall it be for a man to burn for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down in unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my god. Now, speaking of reductio ad absurdum, has it been reduced to the absurd yet? Or does he need to keep on dramatizing this? If you read it well, it's actually hilarious. 
that aha I just laugh at because he's poking fun at the carpenter who's busy with tape measure and saw and axe and everything else and carving tools and he makes this magnificent graven god. And then he looks around and realizes, I've got some leftover material. Uh, I didn't need the whole chunk of wood. So what am I going to do with the leftovers? The leftover god. Uh, I guess we could, well, I mean, it's a little cold out tonight, so let's start a fire and I can warm my hands on the, the burning coals of this, of this leftover god. Oh, while I'm at it, I got hungry, uh, a little faint even, all that hard work to create this creator. And uh, time to eat. Well, the fire's already burning. Thank you, uh, God. Uh, and so I, now I can cook my food and roast my roast. Man, this God is multi-talented, isn't he? That from the same piece of wood, I can do all kinds of things. I mean, it, it, when you think about it, it really is hilarious. Next time you chop some wood to make a campfire and it's not all in the fire yet, I'll kind of laugh to yourself and look at the rest and go, hmm, should I make a God out of any of the rest of this? <laughs> Don't do it. Just keep the fire light. Next, verse 18 and 19. They have not known nor understood. How could they? If they had, they'd be ashamed of what they're doing. For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, what am I thinking? I've burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. Shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stalk of a tree? Do I not realize how foolish this all looks? Now that I have eyes to see. Wow. These gods can do nothing for you. As he says in 20, he feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside that he cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? That right hand that I should have been holding on to the hand of God with. The right hand I should have been making covenants with Christ. And instead what's in it? My car keys, and it's become my God. My house key, and that's all that matters. My, my wallet, my purse, my, my diploma, my, my, my pride, my prosperity, my popularity. Oh, it all fits within our, within our span, if that's what we're trying to grasp with our covenant hand. There's better things to do with it, my friends. It's better to put God first. And then let everything else either fall into place or fall out of place, as the case may be. Well, go on to 21 and 22. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. Again, reminding them of that over and over. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. So please don't forget me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. So return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Can you picture him just pleading? Don't run away. This is carrot and stick. The stick is, you're, it's shamefully foolish to fall for these false gods. But the carrot is his love, his mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness, the redemption he offers us all. 
Then verse 23, Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Sound like W.W. Phelps' magnificent anthem? We'll sing and we'll shout with the armies of heaven. Why? Because God has given us something to sing and shout about. And the glorious redemption that comes only through him, he, he and he alone, oh, it's worth, it's worth praising him for. In verse 24, thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. Again, with language like alone and by myself, the Lord is carving out space away from his competitors. That's our challenge. There are so many things that are vying for our attention and our time. So it makes me so amazed that anyone, anyone out there would want to spend this much time in Scripture with me. Uh, my hat is off to you all. You're allowing God to win the competition. To think about where we put our money. It's what's amazing about tithing and offerings. The fact that we, are, we have evidence that, I'm, that God is winning this competition. That we'll serve in callings and magnify them. That we'll go to the temple and spend time and effort. That we will consecrate what, who, what we have and who we are. How to a God who deserves them. It's, he, it's him and him alone that is worthy of those, those kinds of sacrifices. And I love what he says at the end. Well, liars and diviners and so-called wise men. God ultimately will expose every fake and every cheat and every counterfeit. And we'll see it for what it is. Smoke and mirrors. Oh, hollow, shallow, all that glitters is not gold. The chapter then ends with verse 26 through 28. Speaking of God, he confirmeth the word of his servants and performeth the counsel of his messengers. He's got his prophets back. That saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built even after being carried off captive into Babylon, Babylon will come crashing down and you will return. The city will be inhabited. Jerusalem will be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, be dry. And I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus. And all of a sudden, all eyes on that word. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple Thy foundation shall be laid. Whoa. After all this talk of prophesying, he prophesied in as clear a way as you can. He name dropped. I mean, he was talking about this righteous man from the east that would eventually come down from the north and that people would just fall before him and that he would be uh, an instrument in the Lord's hands to help Israel come home. But to call him out by name? I guess that makes sense. Earlier he'd already said, oh, I know everyone's name. And though you don't yet, well, let me name him here for you. 
His name will be Cyrus. And in chapter 45, he emphasizes this Cyrus prophecy by expanding upon it again, calling him out by name. I guess I can't blame skeptics for assuming this must have been written after the fact, because this is just so dramatic. But I believe in a dramatic God. In chapter 45, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. That's where we get Messiah from. It's where we get Christ from. But this is a lowercase one, okay? A mini-Messiah. To his anointed to Cyrus. Here's my Persian Messiah figure. Whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. And the gates shall not be shut. So here's God willing to work through all people to help build his kingdom even those who were born outside the kingdom to begin with. Cyrus, as described in this verse, is going to receive incredible help. I have holden his hand, he says. It's a biblical scholar, John Watts, who wrote, This description fits Cyrus's career. He had profited from many circumstances other than his military strength. He had gained the following of all the Persian tribes with singular ease. Two successive Median armies that were sent against him decided to join forces with him instead. How's that for loving your enemies? He marched without opposition into Armenia and won a surprise victory over the Lydians when their horses were frightened by the smell of Persian camels. And now Babylon, the world's most heavily fortified city, opens its gates to him without a fight. Truly, doors and gates had been opened for Cyrus. Of course they were. God said it would be that way. Isaiah prophesied it over a hundred years in advance. He goes on in verse 2, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. There's some still more highway construction. Those things always seem to need repair. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Oh, Cyrus, you may not know me, but I know you. You don't know my name yet, but I know yours already, and I'm going to call you by name so that when you see this, it will be this, oh, amazing moment of self-recognition. I always think of that with 2 Nephi 3 when Joseph Smith is translated, and it says, oh, this servant in the Lord's hand will be the same, have the same name as as Joseph in Egypt, who's prophesying of him. Wow, that's interesting. So his, his name will be Joseph. And it'll have to be the same name as his father. So it'll be like a Joseph Jr. Right? Just like, whoa, what just happened? He saw me? He knows my name? Well, of course he knows my name. That's what he said when I saw him in the first vision. Joseph. My name was the word that, that ended the apostasy. It's the first word out of the Father's mouth. He does know me. He knows us all. And I hope you've had some experiences in your life that you can put a finger on the date and say, that day I knew it. My patriarchal blessing was a day like that for me. My mission call was a day like that for me. My marriage was a day like that for me. 
And I've had a few other days like that since of just an absolute knowledge of God's perfect knowledge of little old me. I'm not that good with names. I, I struggle with it. I try. I'm sorry if I, for students that I, I remember so much about them, but I just can't place the name. God doesn't have that problem. And he's proving that here with Cyrus. And he wants that to be a way of recognition that they, that thou mayest know that I'm the Lord. You remember the problem in Pharaoh in Moses' day? He didn't know the Lord. You remember the problem with King Noah in Abinadi's day? He didn't know the Lord. Cyrus, you're not going to have that problem. I'll do something so that you'll know me by proving that you're known of me. So in verse 5, he says, I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. That creating evil sounds off. It's better translation. I create trial, trouble, disaster, struggle, redemptive turbulence again. I, the Lord, do all of these things. And you know what? If you, if you know that, Cyrus then the Persian Empire can come to know that. Got it? In some ways, it's a lot like what we'll see in the book of Daniel when, when Nebuchadnezzar realizes, uh, Daniel's God seems to be doing things that nobody else's God can do. Let's kind of stick with him, shall we? Or like Pharaoh with Joseph in Egypt. Like, Joseph's God? Yeah, this, this guy knows the future and knows how to prepare us for it. Let's honor that God too. Well, again, that's what's going to happen with Cyrus. And what's interesting is Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that lived shortly after the time of Christ, he writes a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, and it's, it's his version of the Old Testament, basically. And when he gets to the, the reign of Cyrus, notice what he says. This is fascinating. In the first year of the reign of Cyrus, God stirred up the mind of Cyrus and made him write this throughout all Asia. Thus saith Cyrus the king. Since God Almighty hath appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, there's from the north and the west and everywhere else that we saw in the previous verse, I believe that he is that God which the nations of the Israelites worship. For indeed he foretold my name by the prophets and that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. Thank you, Josephus. Can, again, can you imagine reading in somebody else's book a prophecy concerning yourself? Almost a, oh, we've been expecting you, Cyrus. And the Lord expects you to do some things on our behalf. Since you're the world's superpower, the most powerful man in the world as far as we're concerned, you can do us some great good. And when, when Cyrus sees it, Okay, you've convinced me. How do I help? So what we studied in Ezra, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus is highly motivated 
And as was described here by Josephus, he wants the world to know, yeah, we've got gods all over. The one I'm feeling strongest about lately is the God of Israel. That just might be the God of the whole universe. Let's stick with him. Verse 8 then, drop down ye heavens from above. Let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Remember way back when we studied Enoch and his visions in Moses 6 and 7? There was that verse near the end of, of the vision where it said that, that righteousness will come down from heaven and truth will come up out of the earth. In Psalm 85, similar language was used. Well, here we're seeing third time the charm, right? Two or three witnesses from Isaiah. And to see revelation come from heaven, restoration, priesthood authority, uh, doctrine and covenants, you name it, and also truth springing from the earth, Book of Mormon. And with all that righteousness and truth coming from every direction, no wonder verse 9 and 10 is such an important caution. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Again, God is trying to put us in our place. We're just axes and saws. Here, we're just clay. In fact, we're more of a potsherd. We're broken. We're broken vessels. And so you want to think you're all that? Well, look around at other fellow potsherds and try to decide which is the most impressive shard. Come on. You are just clay. I'm trying to fashion you. Obviously, you're more than that. You're children. But you're just kids. So don't look to father and mother and think we have no say and how to raise you. Okay, trust our heavenly parents on this. So he says in 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, since that's who you are. Concerning the work of my hands. Now we're back to the clay and the potsherds. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. You're my handiwork. You're my children, so trust that I have your best interests at heart. In verse 13, I have raised him up, Cyrus that is, in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And like we saw, Cyrus recognized his role and lived on up to it. And since Cyrus is our mini Messiah, our type and shadow of Christ, Christ would fill that role as well. You want to talk about someone raised in righteousness? Yeah, it's our righteous redeemer. You want to know someone who will build the city, and not just the old Jerusalem, but the new one? It's him. Who's going to let go the captives? He who came to set us all free. So 14, thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, they shall all come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee. In chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. Foreign nations with pantheons of their own, 
Foreign nations who at some points in history even oppressed and enslaved Israel, now they're coming and they're being converted to the God of Israel. Oh, it's beautiful to watch that happen even in our day. Former enemies now becoming fellow citizens with the saints. In verse 15, Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And by hiding himself at times, faith has a chance to function. Makes you wonder, will we actually believe before perfect knowledge comes to eliminate the possibility of faith? Be, be, take advantage of the times where God seems hidden, okay? Because if not, what happens next? They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. He shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Back to that concept of shame. Oh, if we don't seek for the hidden God and we fall for the false gods that are all right out in the open, we'll be the one wanting to hide ourselves someday, ashamed of the poor choices we've made. In verse 18, he then says, Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. My children, these, this is all part of the plan. I didn't send you here on some whim. Oh, eject you from premortality because I was tired of your company. No, I want, you, I want to make that company eternal. I just need you to be more like me than you were to start. So I created the earth and I didn't do it in vain. I formed it to be inhabited. I sent you here. I raised up this righteous people to be able to tell to all the rest of my children how to make it home. I speak righteousness. So trust that I know what I'm doing in all of this. I know, I know what I'm doing with the scattering. I know what I'm doing with the gathering. I know what it means to reserve this righteous remnant and then turn them loose on a world that needs to be found. It's, it's all going to work. Trust me. 20 and 21, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me? A just God and a Savior? There is none beside me? Wow. I mean, I know Isaiah likes to rhyme things. But he's pushing the limits on this. Because how many times do we have to be reminded? It's only God. And anything else will, will fall short, will abandon us, will leave us lacking. So verse 22, look unto me. <laughs> I know that you live in a very distracting world, but keep your eyes here fixed on me. Look unto me and be ye saved. You won't see salvation anywhere else. All ye ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So start kneeling and declaring that now. 
24, Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Notice his list. Righteousness, strength, justification, glory, all the things that we will need to seek for in life. But where do they all come? In the Lord. There's no other way to obtain them. Chapter 46, he, again, he makes this clear. Through contrast. We've seen many examples of comparison. Here's another example of contrast. Will it be the idol gods or the God of Israel? You choose. That's what we're all doing. Verse 1 and 2, Bel, that's the chief god to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, boweth down. Nebo, that's the god of learning and wisdom. He stoopeth. So even the false gods know who the true god is. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Those false gods have to be carried by the people. They don't carry the people in return. Compare that to the God of Israel in verse 3 and 4. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are borne by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, and even to your old age I am he. Even to your whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. Do you catch the common thread through all those verbs? Bear and carry, and then carry a second time, and make and bear a second time, and carry a third time, and deliver. What do you know that carries and makes and bears and delivers? What do you think of when I use words like belly and womb? Yeah, these are mothering verbs. We already saw what Isaiah said about the ewes that are with young. These little, these sheep that are bearing lambs. And God has a special place in his heart for them. Well, it's because their hearts are so special themselves. There's something about a mother heart. And here, what the, remember the, the big question he keeps asking, how are we going to, how can I talk about God? What can I possibly use to do justice to him? Well, he just nailed it. In fact, in verse 5, he asks the same question all over again. To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? The Lord just answered that question. You want the ultimate analogy for the love of God? Then look to the love of a mother. The, I'm, I'm so honored to be a father. And I love my children with all my heart. I just think my wife's heart is bigger. Because her womb was forced to become bigger. And she brought life into the world by being willing to pass through the valley of the shadow of death herself. Their life came at the expense of her own and still does to large measure. There is something deep and profound. There is something richly symbolic about what a mother does to bring forth life into the world. And that's what the Lord has done for us all. I can't think of a better example than that one that he uses right there. Moses tries 
in a negative way to do that. Back in Numbers chapter 11, when he's complaining about how hard these people are to, to bear and carry to the promised land, he says, Have I conceived all these people? Have I begotten them that thou should say unto them, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth the sucking child? I mean, that was Moses at the end of his rope. I can't blame him, right? But it's like, I did not give birth to these people. And the Lord is almost, it's as if the Lord would say, maybe you should have Moses. Because you'd have more patience with them. You'd have more love for them. If you were their mother. Well, I am. In my own incomparable way. And if you can think about it that way, you'll come to understand a little bit just how much God loves his children. Compare that to false gods who have done nothing for you, that never carried, nor even cared, that didn't bear because you had to bear them. In verse 6 and 7, they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith. We're back to the, the gods of gold. He maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove, at least not if you nail him down so he doesn't tip over. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. I love how much Isaiah likes to make fun of rival redeemers and counterfeit Christs. He goes on in verse 8 and 9, Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. And again, what is it that sets him apart? Verse 10, the fact that he can declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Saying, uh, by way of one example, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, that's Cyrus. Or, fast forward further, that's Christ. The man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Yet another confirmation of the gift of prophecy. So let it be written, so let it be done. Chapter then ends in 12 and 13, Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, which is a nice way of saying you stubborn, <laughs> that are far from righteousness. You're probably too stubborn to call, even though I've been inviting you all this time. Fine, you won't come to me. I'll try to come to you. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So I'm going to come but I'm going to place salvation there in Zion. So you still have some coming to do as well. Can we compromise? Can we meet somewhere in the middle? Please just come to me. I'll be right there waiting for you. But come quickly because the Babylon that you find yourself in is going to come crashing down. I've been talking about that for a while too. Remember the first burdens of Babylon back in chapter 13 and 14? Oh, Lucifer, you've fallen from heaven. And I'm talking to you, king of Babylon. I'm talking to you leaders of the wicked world. And in chapter 47, he's going to keep sounding that cry. This time he's going to change the gender, though. 
it was Lucifer, king. Uh, it was a male of, to describe Babylon. Now we're going to see the female version of it. We've seen, seen the female version of Zion, the daughters of Zion. Well, how about the daughters of Babylon? Well, let's meet them in verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. Like I said, here's the female equivalent of Isaiah 14. This is the Babylonian equivalent of the daughters of Zion. But powerful description. I even wonder... When it says here, a virgin daughter of Babylon, I don't know how many of those there are if we're talking virgin in terms of chastity. Because it's usually the daughters of Zion that prostitute themselves to anyone willing to pay the price. And I'll give you anything you want if you'll give me what I want. That's what Babylon is all about, buying and selling, including the souls of men. So John the Revelator says it. This might simply be virgin as in a young woman. Remember that, that noun, that term can, re, can refer to both. So here you are, this young daughter of Babylon, and life's good. I mean, you've got your dainties and your delicacies and your deliciousness. You're popular everywhere. But you remember in the previous chapter when Isaiah was talking about a forgotten, abandoned prostitute, and when she comes back, she has to go around the city singing and trying to Oh, recreate some interest. An ad campaign is how we described it back then. Well, this young daughter of Babylon, where everything seems to be fine, it's not going to remain that way. Pretty soon you'll be off the throne that the kings of the earth have provided. And you'll be sitting on the ground in the dust. You won't be tender and delicate anymore. No, nobody pampering you because nobody cares about the things that you've been offering. They finally see clearly now and know you have nothing good to give. And so where does that leave you? As a slave, basically. You're with the millstone and grinding the meal. Nobody's providing it for you. You're doing the work now for yourself. Legs bare, uncovered thigh. It's just kind of you're down in the dirt and just working at it and you don't even have time to even cover yourself. Nakedness will be uncovered. You've always been naked. You've always been uncovered by the atonement of Christ. You've always, there's been nothing good to see. You've just been trying to distract us from that with all of these trappings of popularity and pride. Are we, Elder Maxwell once said to seminary and institute teachers, religious educators in the church, that we needed to pry the rising generation away from the cares of the world. And I was struck by his verb choice. Elder Maxwell always chose his words carefully. To pry them loose suggests, in my mind, a crowbar. And in fact, the next week in seminary, I brought a crowbar to class so that we could visualize how stuck on worldly cares are you? And we talked about that. And what's it going to take to pry you loose? Isaiah is trying hard. Using every example, metaphor, symbol, analogy he could think of, to help us see the difference between Zion and Babylon, between the Lord and Lucifer, between the bride of Christ, what the church or Zion is supposed to be, versus the, daughters of, the daughter of Babylon 
and the wicked world it represents. Basically what he's doing in those few verses, he's taking her makeup off and removing the wig. He's turning her inside out just like the Lord did to Zion back in chapter 3. And from this angle, hmm, she's not much to look at. In verse 4, as for our Redeemer, on the other hand, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. There's always a better option. Here he is for the choosing. Verse 5 and 6, sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was wroth with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. In a way, he's saying to the Babylonians that feel so popular, I'm the lady of kingdoms. No, you're not. You didn't win because you were righteous. Israel lost because they were wicked. That's it. That's what happened to the northern kingdom. They lost to the Assyrians, but the Assyrians would then lose too. It's what happened to the southern kingdom. Judah lost to the Babylonians, but the Babylonians will lose too. To whom? To Cyrus, a righteous servant. And here we are so worried about the lady of kingdoms that is trying to get us to sell ourselves to buy whatever she has for us. But the day will come when Babylon falls. Spiritual Babylon, that is. And the righteous Redeemer comes from the east to set us free from our self-imposed bondage. I, for one, look forward to that day. When it happens, look at 7 and 8. Thou, Babylon, sayest, I shall be a lady forever. What are you talking about? I'm going to sit in the dust. Whatever. I'm here proudly on my throne, and it'll never change. But because of that overconfidence, thou didst not lay these things to thy heart. Neither didst remember the latter end of it. You thought you were invincible, that the bills would never come due. Well, time to pay the piper. Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. It's interesting how often we feel immune to the consequences of sin, at least when they're still far off on the horizon thinking, oh, I can get away with this. This is the devil preaching mercy all the time before the sin occurs, okay? Thinking that, like, lulling you into this false sense of security, which is exactly what he's done to his earthly manifestation, Babylon itself. A widow? Are you kidding? Look at how popular I am. Loss of children? Oh, no, they come flocking because I give them everything they want. He says in verse 9 and 10, But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood, the very things that you said could never happen to you. They shall come upon thee in their perfection, for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments, for thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. Interesting that their words are a lot like the Lord's. Because it really does become this ultimate zero-sum game of God and devil, light and darkness, Zion and Babylon, because there's no other options. At the end of the day, which way will you go? 
with, uh, so the Lord says, it's me and no one else, and Babylon says, no, it's me and no one else. But what's fascinating about that passage, as far as the Babylonians were concerned, physically then, spiritually now, there's going to be nothing left, and you'll be amazed at how fast it comes on you, in a moment, in one day. And why will it come as such a shock? Because you never thought it would happen. You, it couldn't happen to you. But what convinced you of that? You trusted in your wickedness. You thought no one was aware of what was really going on. None seeth me is the language. But I also love the idea of sorceries and enchantments, because that's all it is. We're back to the smoke and mirrors. We're back to the false advertising, saying that, oh, it's, a, it's warranted. It's guaranteed that this will, this will never need to be replaced. Well, you won't hold on to it long enough that it would ever have time to break down. With its planned obsolescence, there's going to be something new that comes around just the, around the corner, and then you're going to want that. How's that for an enchantment? How's that for sorcery? We fall for it all the time. Therefore, verse 11, shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth. And mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off. Desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. There's three rhymes there. Talk about getting blindsided by the consequences of your sins. Man, that piper came out of nowhere. Well, yeah, but he wants to get paid. In verse 12 and 13, Stand now with thine enchantments, and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. I mean, if so be that thou shalt be able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail. I mean, they've always come through for you in the past, though that smoke and mirror sure made you look good. Can't they carry you through the dark days now? Oh no, thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, let them stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. <laughs> oh, he's talking smack and comparing, contrasting. They're going to come through for you? No, they won't. And they're not coming through for you now. These monthly prognosticators, no wonder they need to do it every month because they got it wrong last time. Well, just let me try again. Let me try again. The astrologers, the stargazers, enchanters, sorcerers, pretty good description. For the wicked world and know they can't come through for you when push comes to shove. I always thought about the prodigal son and how many friends he must have had during the, the glory years when he got his father's inheritance, right? And he's living it up and spending the money and that's a pretty good way to attract people. Everyone is friend to him that giveth gifts. Wasn't that one of the Proverbs we saw? Well, he's got gifts to give and they, they're there to take them. But as soon as he has nothing left, and that's where Babylon wants to leave you, penniless. It took, it took everything from you, every last ounce of self-respect. Well, where are all those friends now? Surely, I mean, they were all close at hand when he was the one, you know, another round on me. Who are his friends now? Well, not friends, just swine. I guess willing to share their slop if he can work his way in there. It's tragic, but that's the world that we live in. Verse 14 and 15, what will the result of that world be? Behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. 
Sounds a lot like the way Malachi will end the Old Testament. But then, ironically, despite all that fire consuming the wicked, there shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. They get all the bad fire, none of the good fire. Interesting. Thus shall they be unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander every one to his quarter. None shall save thee. I'm glad that's not the way we're ending our lesson this week. Because that would be closing on a downer. No one is there to help you. Now, who's the audience that gets that? The wicked world. Okay, you trusted in things that weren't worthy of your trust and they cannot come back to your rescue. But who might be feeling some of that themselves? Well, how about the tribes of Israel up north that feel abandoned and forgotten and, and there's no one there to help us in our scattered condition? How might the southern kingdom feel when they're carried captive into Babylon? And where is God in all of this? We'll see that exact question on their minds as we study Jeremiah in a few weeks. What do we do? But that's not, that's not the audience of those words of warning. For them, there's words of reassurance. There is someone here to help you. The same one who's been there for you all along. And so as we go from the, the downer of the end of 47 onto chapters 48 and 49, where we'll end this week's lesson, these are two of the best chapters you could ever ask for. Again, it's juxtaposing darkness and now light. And they are brilliant. In fact, these two are the original Isaiah chapters. We think of Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. We think 2 Nephi uh, 12 to 24, which is Isaiah 2 through 14. That's good, but that's more of the history lesson. You want the, the doctrinal reassurance? Then go to the original Isaiah chapters, which are in 1 Nephi, not 2 and in 1 Nephi chapter 20 and 21, Nephi is quoting Isaiah 48 and 49 with a purpose in mind that is beautiful. The way he introduces it, remember our first week of Isaiah, we, I said that Nephi often gives you some, a pump-up speech to get you ready for Isaiah, then he'll quote Isaiah, and then he'll explain it. Well, the first instance of that is 20 and 21 of 1 Nephi. So guess what he does right at the end of 1 Nephi 19? He pumps you up. And what does he do in 1 Nephi 22? He explains what he was hoping we would get out of these chapters. But the pump up is beautiful. It's there where he says, you've got to learn to liken scripture or it won't be for your profit or learning. So first thing you got to do in these next two chapters, liken them unto yourself. Know that Isaiah is speaking to you, about you, for you. And the second thing he says, I did quote unto them the words of the prophet Isaiah, that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord, their Redeemer. I love that. What we're about to study in these two final chapters is meant to be persuasive. It's meant to convince us of Christ and persuade us to come unto him. In fact, the last thing Nephi says before quoting these chapters is in verse 24 of 1 Nephi 19. He says, Hear ye the words of the prophet." Ye who are a remnant of the house of Israel, a branch who have been broken off, hear ye the words of the prophets, which were written unto all the house of Israel, and liken them unto yourselves, that ye may have hope, as well as your brethren from whom ye have been broken off, 
For after this manner hath the prophet written. And then he quotes Isaiah 48. Now he's talking to all of scattered Israel. He knows about them because they were scattered in Isaiah's day, and he's an expert on Isaiah's day and Isaiah's writings. But he's talking to a more immediate audience as well. He's talking to those left behind in Jerusalem that were about to get carried off captive into Babylon, and they are going to be feeling like a branch cut off the tree as well. But he's also speaking to his own immediate family. In a way, he's talking to himself and trying to work through some difficult emotions of being uprooted and cut off, broken off, and scattered to some foreign land that supposedly is a promised one. But I... Uh, can I really wrap my head and heart around that? I love what he says. Read these, know that you're the audience, and have hope. So to any of you out there that are feeling broken off, that are feeling cut off from God through fault of your own or no fault of your own, whether it's sin, whether it's suffering, whatever it might be, I don't know of two chapters better designed to bring you hope than these ones. So please pray for the Spirit as we study Isaiah 48 and 49. Verse 1, Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah. That's where Nephi adds, or out of the waters of baptism. He wants to make sure we understand the importance of that ordinance. Which swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. Nephi inserts the all-important word, not, there. They do not stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And we won't fall to any kind of enemy. Now what Nephi is doing to open these chapters, or better said, what Isaiah is doing to open his, is call out hypocrisy. It's to call out this false sense of security that sometimes comes just because, I mean, I've, I'm part of the house of Israel. I'm called by the name. I've been through the waters of Judah. I swear by the name of the Lord. I mean, I live here in the holy city. Doesn't that make me holy? Right? It's on my address for crying out loud. Oh, careful, Israel. You're no better than the daughters of Babylon that are self-assured, thinking, I'm Babylonian and all will be well. The whole world loves me. I'll never fall off this throne. Mm, prepare yourself. And for you hypocritical Israelites that think all it takes is membership, that was something Jesus himself would push back against often in the New Testament. Oh, he can, or John the Baptist would do the same thing. You think you're better because your house of Israel, seed of Abraham? Look at the stones by your feet. God could raise up out of those rocks children unto Abraham. You're nothing. Unless you talk, you walk the walk more than just talk the talk. Okay? Don't just make mention of the God of Israel. Follow him. Don't just be called by the name of Israel. Live up to that name and let God prevail in your life. In verse 3, he says, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth out of my mouth and I showed them. I did them suddenly and they came to pass because I knew that thou art obstinate and thy neck is an iron sinew and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou should say, Mine idol hath done them. 
and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Again, he's pitting true God against false gods on the issue of prophecy and fulfillment. As if he's saying there, I told you this in advance. And one of the great gifts of prophecy is the fact that it provides evidence that, that God was there all along and he and only he knew that all of this was coming. In some ways, what prophecy does is remove the possibility of thinking this was just a coincidence or thinking that I did this myself or that somebody else did this. It's like, whoa, no, God saw this coming and he told us, whoa, okay, there is some master plan and a master who planned things and I should, I should honor that master. He says in verse 6 and 7, thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when thou heardest them not, lest thou should say, behold, I knew them. He's doing it again, prophesying future events so you know it was part of the plan. Don't take credit to yourself. Don't think that I didn't see this coming. Uh, verse 8 and 9, Yea, thou heardest not. Yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time thine ear was not opened. For I knew that thou wouldst deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. You've always been that way, doubting me. But for my name's sake will I defer mine anger. For my praise will I refrain from thee, that I cut thee not off. This is willful ignorance and deep disobedience on your part, but I will meet that with mercy. I'll make sure a remnant remains and that a remnant returns. And so he says in verse 10 and 11, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with the silver. This is going to be a different kind of purification process. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction for mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory unto another. You see, if God is God and Israel is his people, then Israel has to turn out godly. And so God's going to keep working on them and in them and with them and through them until they finally change. I mean, there were those times back with Moses where God threatened, and again, without any intention to follow through, where he said, that's it, Moses, I'm going to start over. I'm just going to restart the thing, and you'll be, you'll be my new Adam, my new Noah. And Moses has to say, no, no, don't do it, because what's, what's everybody going to think? A God that couldn't pull off creating a righteous people. Well, re reverse it now, and that's what God's been after all along. I'm not going to give up on you. I never will. I'm just going to keep on purifying. You're my pot. You're my, my, my chunk of clay. And I will keep <laughs> adding water, living water. I'll keep you on the wheel. I'll keep trying and fashioning. And if you even get hardened in your iniquity, yes, I will break those hearts and shatter those potsherds. But just so that I can grind it back to powder and add more living water and start the process anew. I will never give up on you. After all, verse 12, hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. I'll be here through the whole process. I'll never give up on you until you're purified and refined. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, 
and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. The heavens and the earth honor me. They obey. You, not so much. That's why Samuel Lamanite said we're less than the dust of the earth, because the dust obeys. We're obstinate dust particles. But he'll keep working on us. Okay? He'll keep fashioning us. So he says in 14, All ye assemble yourselves and hear. Which among them hath declared these things? The Lord hath loved him. Nephi adds right there, Yea, and he will fulfill his word which he hath declared by them. And what is that promise? He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him, namely Cyrus, for the physical Babylon, namely Christ for the spiritual Babylon. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. But if Cyrus and Christ are going to do their pleasure on Babylon, which means destroy it, then those of you who, spiritually speaking, are finding yourselves in Babylon, yeah, you might want to come out before the destruction occurs. That's what he says in verse 16 and 17. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. And what's the message he sent them with? Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. But if he's teaching, it begs the question, will we learn? If he's leading, will we follow? From our track record, it doesn't look so good. So what does the Lord say in verse 18 and 19? Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, ever flowing, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea, ever crashing, ever coming to the shore. It, they never end. This is a relentless righteousness that could have been ours if we'd come unto Christ. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. Sound like the Abrahamic covenant? His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. It all could have been yours. Actually, let's change the verb tense. It all still can be, but it will require you to repent and come unto me. It will require you to leave the wicked world that you've become so ingrained in. So verse 20 through 22, go ye forth of Babylon. Flee ye from the Chaldeans. Do that physically, ancient Israel. Do that spiritually, modern Israel. And as you go with a voice of singing, declare ye. Tell this, utter it even to the ends of the earth. And here's the message. Say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. Picture Moses at the rock. Picture Christ on the cross. At that moment, Nephi adds, And notwithstanding he hath done all this, and greater also. And then he goes back to quoting Isaiah. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. 
Man, Nephi saw this so clearly. That's why he inserts himself every so often into Isaiah's words. Are you getting it, house of Israel, up north, scattered a century ago? Are you getting it, house of Judah in the south, about to be destroyed? Are you getting it, Laman and Lemuel? Do we understand as a family that our only hope was to escape Babylon? And though we never, we survived, we left before Babylon came to carry one, everyone over. But by then, they didn't even need us to. We were already captive to Babylon before Babylon came to captivate us. That's the irony there. We have become Babylonian ourselves. At least the people of, of Judah had. That's what Dad was talking about. That's what Jeremiah was warning about. And people wouldn't listen. Will we? Will you? Laman and Lemuel, we have to escape our wickedness. And that's not just a change of, of address. That's a change of attitude. Remember what Dad talked about with the great and spacious building? Yeah, we got to get out of there and make our way to the tree of life. Chapter 49 then concludes this portion, and it is a masterpiece. Many of my favorite images from Isaiah appear in this chapter, and it is a message from the merciful Messiah, promising us a glorious gathering. Remember why Nephi is quoting this, to give you hope you who have been broken off and cast out. So here's the hope that he gives. In fact, this chapter is so important to him that a generation later, after some other difficult things happen, and they split with Laman and Lemuel, and now there's Lamanites and Nephites, and we feel like, it feels like it's getting worse, not better. He then turns to his little brother Jacob, who's grown up through all of this, and says, would you mind speaking in general conference this time? And I want to assign you a topic. And guess what he assigns him? Here's some Isaiah that I want you to explain. And where's the Isaiah from? Chapter 49. Beautiful. What Nephi does with it in 1 Nephi 21, and then explains in 22. What Jacob does with it in 2 Nephi 6, and then goes on to keep explaining in 7, 8, 9. It's amazing. This is an epicenter of Isaiah as far as the Nephites were concerned. It begins in verse 1 by calling everyone to attention. Listen, O isles, unto me. Hearken, ye people, from far. Nephi would say, uh, that includes us now. <laughs> okay. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. God's known us from even before birth. And he's had a mission waiting for us all this time. Here it is, verse 2 and 3. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now with this talk of weapons, the sword in the mouth, oh, that's one we see often in Scripture. My, my God's word is a sharp two-edged sword. Okay, But then this idea of a polished shaft in the quiver, now it's an arrow. We've shifted from swords to arrows. And we saw an arrow analogy way back in chapter 5 of Isaiah. Remember that missionary that I taught at the MTC who put on his missionary plaque? The bent bow and the sharp arrow and the, 
the flint-like hooves and the wheels like a whirlwind. I love that missionary. Well, are we the archer or are we the arrow? And the answer is yes. As archer, we're bending the bow. We're ready to just send the gospel at any target before us. But maybe we are the arrow and God is the archer. And he's bent the bow. And are we ready to go where the Lord has sent us with the message he wants us to bring? Are we a polished shaft so that it flies straight and true while we hit the target? Or are we so unpolished that we end up veering off and not reaching where the Lord wants us to go? Well, Isaiah wants to be a polished shaft. Nephi wants to be a polished shaft. I want to be a polished shaft. But do we sometimes say this in verse 4? Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Do we feel that sometimes? Do we think my efforts have been completely unsuccessful? Nobody listens to me. My children have all left the church or I never baptized a soul on my mission or whatever it might be. Keep reading the verse. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. The story's not over, my friends. You just keep planting seeds and praying that God, who is the gardener, will just keep tending the garden. He doesn't give up on it. Go reread Jacob 5. Go reread Isaiah for crying out loud. Verse 5 Now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. It's the whole purpose we're here. We were born to gather Israel. It is the family business. It's what it means to be the seed of Abraham, as Elder Bednar has so clearly taught. So we were born for this. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Of course, the work isn't done yet. It hasn't been accomplished, but it will be, and it will be glorious. So prepare for that. Live into that. Let that be your attitude. No unhallowed hand will stop the work from progressing. We got this because God's got this. So then he says in verse 6, he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of of the earth. I love what he says there. Wait, you, you're intimidated because you don't think that Israel's going to be gathered? That's actually the easy part. So prepare yourself for something even bigger. And like I said, I got this and I got you, so we're going to be able to do this together. But the way he put it there, it's a light thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I mean, they, they should know who they are. And as you remind them of that, as you teach them the gospel, it will strike a chord of memory and they'll come gathering. But that's just the first step. The second step is far bigger and far greater, and that's gathering everyone else. I also want you to be a light to the Gentiles. And from there, I want my salvation to go to the ends of the earth. This is the ripple effect, and I want it to spread to cover, so that the, the knowledge of the, world, of, the, of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. How's that for the ripple? Right? So what's amazing about this is the gathering of Israel is only the first step. Uh, bringing the gospel to the Jews was the first step. From there, thank you, Apostle Paul, it's going to go to the Gentiles. From there, the Gentiles, this is the restoration now, the day of the Gentiles is actually going to bring the gospel to all nations and bring it back to the Jews as well. 
But the ultimate goal is universal. God is the father of us all. So don't think that it's not enough just to share the gospel with people that seem like they're, well, they're just, they're dry Mormons, as we used to say. They, they're, they're golden investigators, we can still say. No, we're supposed to bring the gospel even to the non-religious as well as the religious, the skeptical as well as the believing, the Gentile as well as the Jew. It's for everyone. So, verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, To him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, yes, I know that's how you feel, that you are a small, despised, looked down upon people, but like you'll never be able to accomplish my work. But notice my promise. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. People that never took you seriously will take the work of God seriously because they will see it unfold before their eyes and it will leave them speechless. The scriptures make that promise too, that kings will stand and behold things that they've never considered. This strange work, this strange act, this marvelous work will leave them wondering. In verse 8 and 9, thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, same language he used earlier, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. I mean, there's our marching orders. We're called to go forth and reassure people who feel forgotten. Oh, no, 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 you come. You're going to inherit the desolate heritage. And it's not desolate anymore. The desert has blossomed as a rose. It's going to be incredible. So come home. And God has laid out the feast of fat things for you. Pasture in high places. You thought the green pastures were good. You thought the still waters were, were nice. Oh, forget about it. What God is trying to bring you into, that's why he sent us. We are a covenant of the people. We're not just a people of the covenant. We are a covenant of the people. And what he means by giving us for a covenant of the people is what I was describing earlier. We're the embodiment of God's word. And his word was, I'm going to make sure everybody comes back home. That's why I love the way he says it at the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants of, I will give these words to them, my people, to bring unto you, O people of the world. Wait, them and you? We're back to our pronouns. Oh, those church members? Oh yeah, I'm talking about them, but who am I speaking to directly? Oh, you, people of the world. I'm, gonna, I'm just trying to prepare the way so when they knock on your door, you'll know that I sent them. They're on their way bringing the fullness of the gospel. They are a covenant of the people. And everyone is my people. My covenant is to bring you all home. So please let them in. They have a book that they think is theirs, but it really was meant for you. Okay? Take a copy and read it. It'll change your life. In verse 10 through 12, he then says, They shall not hunger nor thirst. 
neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. And then we're back to more water imagery. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far. And lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. This is a high road. This is a path through the mountains. Remember, all nations are supposed to flow up to it. And the mountain of the Lord, oh yes, these are places of living water, places of the bread of life, places of high elevation. But we're going to bring people there. And what will they do on the way? Verse 13, they'll sing. And they won't be alone in their singing. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. By now, we're all singing Handel's Messiah, okay? The Lord hath comforted his people, well, through us. Comfort ye, all y'all, get the word out. It's time to come home. In verse 14, but Zion said, so how do we respond to this invitation? Well, I don't know, okay, but there's, we're stopping him. But Zion said, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And do we sometimes feel that way? Do we feel abandoned? Do we sometimes accuse God of having forsaken or forgotten us? Well, if we do, or if we have, then here's his response. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? This is coming from the same God who used mother analogy to describe the love he has for his children. And here he is doing it again. Do you have any idea how much I love you? More than a mother even can. And in fact, what kind of mother is he talking about? Can a woman forget her sucking child? What age would that be? This is not just, oh yeah, moms love their kids, but this is a woman with a nursing infant. Remember we already saw that verb used in the Hebrew for those that are with young, a nursing mother. We'll see that idea later in the same chapter. But a nursing mother, it's physically impossible for them to forget their sucking child. Physically impossible. So Isaiah is trying to push the envelope on this analogy. He's so good at this, so gifted in his metaphors. And so to say, I mean, I remember the first time, I'm clueless, I'm a male. I didn't understand any of this. But after our first child uh, was born and my wife was nursing, we, it had been a while since we'd been able to go to the temple. So we got a babysitter and went to the temple. And we had an amazing experience. And as soon as we left, I thought, well, let's go and have dinner or something and just kind of celebrate. We finally have some time to the, to the two of us. And my wife said, no, I, we got to get back to, we got to get back to our, our daughter. And I'm like, she's, we got a babysitter. It's fine. And she's all, no, she's hungry. I'm like, how on earth can you know that? She's all, because I have to nurse. And you mothers understand this better than any fathers do, but it was physically painful for her not to be able to feed her baby. Physically impossible to forget that there was a, an infant that meant the world to us, that needed something from us. Well, something from mom, at least. I was there for diaper changes. <laughs> but do you understand what Isaiah is getting at? I love his analogy here. But Zion said, Zion, you're wrong. You haven't been forgotten. Even at times where it feels like there's, it's just redempt, redemptive turbulence, 
God is trying to give you space for you to fill with faith and strength and growing independence. Now, Isaiah, if that sinks into our soul, it's interesting what he then says next. Because he, right on the heels of saying, it's impossible, uh, it, you, a mo nursing mother cannot forget her newborn, he then says, well, yay, they may forget. So even if it were possible, I'll even entertain the possibility. Yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. How could I forget? When we talk about, oh, I know that like the back of my hand. It's, what's the assumption there? That the back of the hand is something we see so often because our hands are always in front of us. We're always using them. That's something you ought to know. That's something you'll see. And so when the Lord says, it's physically impossible for a nursing mother to forget a nursing child, well, it's spiritually, intellectually, emotionally impossible for me to forget you because every time I look at my hands, I remember. These are the receipts of my redemption. And I have engraven thee there. To think about what Jesus did on the cross and what he did even post-resurrection to hold on to the scars of his experience so that for the rest of eternity he would have evidence of his love for us. Better yet, that we would have evidence of that love. In one of the first talks, maybe the first talk, I can't remember, that Elder Holland gave as an apostle, he said this, In a resurrected, otherwise perfected body, our Lord of this sacrament table, his talk was about the sacrament, has chosen to retain for the benefit of his disciples the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Signs, if you will, that painful things happen even to the pure and perfect Signs, if you will, that pain in this world is not evidence that God doesn't love you. It is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our soul. He who yet bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love and humility and forgiveness. There's something about those beautiful scenes, whether it's Doubting Thomas whether it's the assembled Nephites in Bountiful in 3 Nephi 11. But when Jesus says to come and see and put your, I'll let you touch it. I'll give you as much evidence proof as you, as you need. Part of that is evidence of who Christ is, but part of it is evidence of who we are and how he feels about us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we are engraven in the palms of his hands. Now, years ago when I was teaching at the MTC, a wonderful young missionary, it was personal scripture study, and he was in the Isaiah chapters, at least the first one. He was in First uh, Nephi chapter 21. And as he was reading this, these verses from Isaiah 49, he raised his hand and said, Hermano Halverson, ayuda, por favor. Can you please help me? And he pointed to this verse and he said, what does that mean? And I looked over it and said, oh, the engraving in the palms of my head. Don't you love this? I mean, think about crucifixion, right? Uh, and what Christ has done for us to remind us, and, and you'll, we'll never be forgotten. 
and I thought I'd solved his problem and answered his question and I could send him on his merry way. And he looked at me and like, well, duh, I knew that one. That one's pretty obvious. It's that other line. What's he mean by that? Thy walls are continually before me. And I was stumped. I was like, oh, you wanted to talk about that part. <laughs> Can we go back to the part I actually understand? Well, later, as I learned about Hebrew poetry and repeated ideas, it's like, I, even if I don't know exactly what it means, I know it's repeating the same concept as the, verse, as the phrase before it. It's, he's trying to reassure us that he remembers us. Well, that's a good help, a good start. But the more I thought about it, walls, walls. What would a wall mean for an ancient Israelite? Especially one who had just barely survived the Assyrian invasion. As they hunkered down, ah, behind their walls, as Rabshakeh was sending taunts and mockery, the walls that King Hezekiah, ah yeah, same time period, uh, is trying to dig a tunnel underneath and trying to fortify so that they could remain within their walls and still have everything they need. Walls are what keep the wicked out and what keep the righteous safe. Walls are what we surround ourselves with. They define the limits of our existence. And those walls are continually before Christ. My wife and I have come to love this phrase, and we sometimes use it with each other. When we want the other person to know what we're going through, there are times where my wife will be in the midst of something difficult, and sometimes she will literally take a picture of where she happens to be and send me the picture with a caption, my walls, which is just a two-word plea for acknowledgement and recognition. Honey, I know you're busy, and I am too, but do you know what I'm going through? And do you see what I surround myself with? Because sometimes walls, it's more than just, oh, what, what do you have on your walls? You can learn a lot about a person by looking at their walls, I'll say that. And what do you have hanging there? What, your, where's your family picture? What means something to you? I think there's something beautiful about that. But sometimes walls feel like they are closing in on us and crushing down upon us, and I don't know if I can escape the room that I'm in. And so to be able to have the Lord say, thy walls are continually before me. I see everything that you see. In fact, I see beyond them. I see windows in these walls, letting in light, and I want to reassure you that all can be well. Those are the walls that the Lord always has before him. The ones that he will help us through with his, with the hands with which we are engraven. I am grateful for that and testify as a result that we are not forgotten. In verse 17, he says, Thy children shall make haste, thy destroyers, and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. That seems slightly out of place considering all that Isaiah has been talking about, but not so fast. Think about children making haste so that destroyers will leave. 
we've, we've been seeing these role reversals, right? And one of the reasons that Zion feels forgotten is because the enemy is right outside the walls, walls that the Lord is well aware of. Well, who's going to be able to rise and fight them and drive them back? Well, your own children will. They will rise quickly. They will make haste and they will deliver you from your destroyers. You want to talk about a, a gloriously reassuring promise, especially for parents whose walls are covered with pictures of their children, whose walls are walls of worry about the children they, they hold so dear. And to think of that promise from the Lord, the day will come that your children will make haste to defend you, defend the kingdom, to reassure and to shore up these, these walls that are keeping enemies at bay. I look forward to that day as I work with your children on a daily basis. In verse 18, he says, Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together, and come to thee. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on thee, as a bride doeth. There are scriptures that speak of the redeemed being jewels in the crown of God. And that's a beautiful image. I might like this one even better, though, because these ones are gemstones on Israel's wedding dress. Right? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Thank you, Paul, in Ephesians. The bride of Christ is the church. It's the house of Israel. The church, if it's a New Testament wedding, the house of Israel, if it's an Old Testament wedding, okay, it's all the same. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it speaks about her being arrayed in her beautiful white raiment. Christ will come to the wedding with robes of reminding red. But imagine Israel in this magnificent robes of purity. But what's on it? All those that have been gathered together. This is one of, the, one of these scenes of the gathering of Israel that I just love. Picture bringing them in to the house. Now they get to be part of the bride. They're part of the, the wedding gown. And imagine not just some kind of white satin or silk or whatever material it might be. This is a gown of gemstones. Diamonds glittering in the brilliant light that her husband provides. It's amazing to think of what we're trying to accomplish as we prepare for the wedding feast, the second coming. So go gather. In verse 19, For thy waste and thy desolate places, and the land of thy destruction, shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. And they that swallow thee up shall be far away. The children which thou shalt have, after thou hast lost the other, shall say again in thine ears, the place is too straight for me. Give place to me that I may dwell. I remember way back at the beginning of Isaiah, it talked about the, the desolation to the point it would look like a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, a little cottage in a field, in a vineyard somewhere, where it's like, man, this is desolation. I got all kinds of space to grow. There's nothing around me. Well, no longer. And what he's describing here, when he says the place is too narrow by reason of the inhabitants, 
uh, I picture, I don't know, passing period in junior high where it's just uh, trying, to, trying to get through to get to your next class. Or picture a house that is just far too small for the number of people that are trying to live in it. To the point that the children themselves start complaining. And that's what happens by the end of that verse. The place is too straight for me. Not straight as in S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, uh, unbending, no, no, not crooked. Straight as in S-T-R-A-I-T, a synonym for narrow. It's just, there's no room. I, I Can I not have, have you ever had, get, had a child that's like, I just want a room of my own. I don't want to share. Well, that's, that's the equivalent of what's happening here. I just wish there was room here. But the irony is, this is the best problem ever. Remember the old woman that lived in the shoe and had so many children she didn't know what to do? Well, imagine if she had been barren up to that point. And now, this shoe is filled with children that I never thought I'd have. Or imagine if she was a bereaved mother who had lost all her children. Imagine Job's wife and ten graves that she tends with her mother heart. And what's described here is this mother in Israel whose children have been scattered, whose children have been destroyed. Assyria, Babylon have been the enemies, but this poor, distraught, lonely mother with no children. Even Babylon was scared of the thought of not having children. And now it's happened to Zion. But that's only the scattering. What is the gathering? They'll come home. They'll come home with the people that gathered around them in their period of dispersion. They'll come, the Jews will come home bringing Gentiles. They'll be bringing the isles of the sea. And all people, as far as the eye can, can imagine, the whole family will come home. And what's amazing about this promise is, imagine how oh, the, the church being so jam-packed, there's not room for everybody. We spill out into the parking lot. Imagine the kingdom of God being so big that we just have to expand. No wonder it's described in such monumental terms in the book of Revelation. There needs to be room for everyone because everyone can come. And so don't feel forgotten. Remember, try to keep this whole chapter in, in, in one place in your head so you, you can see all of its parts. Don't feel forsaken. Don't feel forgotten. I'm, you're on the palms of my hands for crying out loud. I see your walls that you're cowering behind. And I want those walls to come breaking down, not so that the enemy can come, but because you don't have enough room to, to, to pack in all the people that matter to you. Those wayward children that have strayed, they've all come home. Not just a prodigal son, singular, but everybody. Scattered Israel has been gathered. Captive Judah has come rushing back home. And how will you feel about it? <laughs> the best news will be that your children will start wanting rooms of their own. <laughs> rooms that used to be empty are now packed to the full. To the point that in verse 21, then shalt thou say in thine heart, and these to me are some of the most touching words in all of scripture, who hath begotten me these. Seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro. And who hath brought up these? 
Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? This mother is so confused in a, in a joyful way. She's beside herself with joy, but it doesn't make any sense. So she keeps repeating the question, where did all these people come from? Uh, where have they been? I, I've been removing to and fro. I've been out searching for my lost children, but can't find them. Where did they all come from? Who hath begotten me these? Imagine, I can't imagine Job's wife saying that. When by the end of the story, she has 10 new children, not to replace the old, but to be added to them, eternal families. Imagine a barren Sarah rejoicing over baby Isaac, a barren Rebecca rejoicing over baby Jacob, a barren Rachel rejoicing over baby Joseph, a barren Hannah rejoicing over baby Samuel, a scattered Israel rejoicing that everyone's come back home. This is family reunion. This is redemption and reconciliation. This is being remembered by a God who refuses to forget. Maybe this verse means so much to me because we've lived it in physical ways and long for a day where we'll live it spiritually too. Because when my wife and I were first married, we wanted children. It took a long time for me to convince her to marry me. Seven months of unsuccessful proposals. Uh, but when we finally were married, we wanted to have children as quickly as possible. Uh, we, we felt like we were, we'd been waiting too long already. And so we prayed and hoped and, and no children came. And the next month would pass with no children, and the next month, and the next month. Meanwhile, my wife, ever since she was a little girl, had her biggest fear had been, what if I can't have children of my own? I know there are those of you who have had to deal with that, and challenges of infertility, and wondering, and thank God there are other solutions. And loved ones that I know that have adopted children that are every bit as much a, a members of the family as anyone that would have come through flesh and blood. It's beautiful. And my wife and I started thinking, will that be our path? Is that how we will have children? Because month after month came and went with no, with no pregnancy. We, we were in a married student ward at BYU at the time, for crying out loud, where everybody seemed to be having children, left and right. My wife happened to be the Relief Society president at the time, so she was aware of all of them and in a way was called upon to rejoice with them. It came naturally at first. You're, you're pregnant. I'm so excited for you. I can hardly wait till it's my turn. But as the, her turn never seemed to come, we're pregnant. And how did she react? Oh, I'm so happy for you and wish I could be happy for me. And then a few more months and a few more pregnancies and a few more months of not not being pregnant herself and then it was I'm pregnant it's like in fact at one point somebody was so excited with how many pregnancies there are in the ward somebody said man it's amazing how many pregnant women there are and just ever we're gonna have a, a nursery that's going to be bursting at the seams and Man, there must be something in the water is what they said and I remember my wife got home and told me that and she was like then give me the water dang it how, when are we going to be able to, have, be able to have children? And we went to fertility specialists. 
We tried to figure out what the problem was. It turned out I was the problem. And thankfully, a surgery later, we were able to have children of our own. But we explored every option that we could. And my wife, it was weighing on her far more than it was even weighing on me. And my heart went out to her. I, just, I felt like it's going to work out. It's going to come. And it did. But what is most amazing? Fast forward, oh, eight or nine, ten years. I lose track. We were living in Tennessee at the time. Uh, and <laughs> this is actually, I guess we probably have to fast forward more like 15. Um, because it was near the end of our time in Tennessee. And we had five children by then. Okay, And we were living in this house, the same house that we bought when we moved in, and it was small. Uh, it was three-bedroom, and we now had seven people living in it. Uh, there was the master bedroom, and there was the girls' room, and then there was the boys' room, and they, we were kind of packed. But I thought, hey, we were used to this. No big deal. I remember one year we had lived, when my wife was pregnant with child number four, I was on a one-year rotation at BYU, and we didn't want to commute from our house in Salt Lake, and so we rented, we rented our, our little house in Salt Lake and moved into this tiny little basement apartment in Provo, so I'd have a five-minute commute. Uh, and it was two bedroom. And so it was my wife and I in one room and then our three children in the other. Uh, and, and she's pregnant with number four packed house. And then her younger, my wife's younger brother needed a place to stay. And we're like, yeah, sure. Why not? The more the merrier. And so can you sleep on the couch? Sure. And he slept on the couch until we started feeling bad that he didn't have a room of his own. Uh, and so we pulled the kids out of their room and put him in there. And where else are the kids going to go? In our room. Why not? And so it was my wife and I and our, our two older kids kind of packed together in the bed or on the floor or whatever. The, the crib where our youngest daughter was, in, was, we put her in the closet. I used to joke that when she was a baby, her mobile was not like animals hanging above her, but like white shirts and ties. Uh, if I need to put her to sleep, I'll just lean over her and pretend like my tie is moving and she's good to go. Okay, That's how she was raised. Uh, and so just sleeping in the closet with the door open. And, and meanwhile, my wife is great with child, with child number four. All of us packed into one little basement room. And so I'm thinking, we got three rooms in this house in Tennessee. This is, this is massive. But when my wife started saying, honey, there's just not enough room for everybody. That was music to my ears. Because I remembered her years and years before, thinking that our home would only have empty rooms with no children in them. And so when she went from, why can't I have children, to we don't have room for all our children, as a student of Isaiah, what phrase popped into my head? Who hath begotten me these? As my wife was rejoicing, where'd all these kids come from? <laughs> and a woman who never thought she'd have any, or feared that at least, had more than we had room for. But there's always room for them, and room for many, many more. I hope that we have that in mind as we share the gospel. There's room in the kingdom for everyone. I hope we have that in mind as we go to the temple and do work for the dead, as we seek out our ancestors 
because that's the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil, and it's bringing the children home. In some ways, it's a chance. I mentioned Sarah and Re Re Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah. We can say this to all of the bereaved woman, women that Joseph Smith met and reassured all your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection. In some ways, we can say that on behalf of heavenly parents, wondering about our children, their children who stray in life, they have created a plan of redemption, a plan of happiness. But I have a feeling when all is said and done, even our heavenly parents will look around with awe and wonder and say, who hath begotten me? These. The whole family's back. We made it. Just a few last verses then. Verse 22 and 23, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. That's raising the ensign. That's blowing the trumpet. It's making sure the world knows. It's what Isaiah has been talking about so often through this book so far. But notice the result now that it's time to gather. They shall bring thy sons in their arms. Thy, thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. So please just wait. Wait and be patient. Wait and have faith. Wait and know that I am God. And this is going to happen. The way he describes it there is so moving. We, we saw a shepherd carrying a sheep in his bosom. But it's no longer just sheep now. Now it's your son that are, that's being carried close to their heart. Now it's your daughter carried where? On your shoulders. I love that one. Because as a young father, I loved carrying my children on my shoulders. I loved carrying them in my arms, close to my heart, but there's something magical about it. just feeling their legs dangling down your, <laughs> around your neck, just holding onto their ankles. And I would always lean to one side or the other or forward and back so they felt like they were about to fall off and we would just laugh together. And I loved that. I miss that. In a way, I know that my children do too. My youngest, who's also my smallest, uh, she loved shoulders. She loved it before she could even pronounce the word. She would just say, shoulders. And as a little girl, when she wanted to be lifted up and be able to have a bird's eye view of life, she'd just go, she'd just come up to me and one word command, shoulders. Now my father, she'd say that to grandpa too. And my father-in-law always laughs and still says to her, shoulders. And we get a kick out of it. But what was, what was funny to me, as much as she loved that, as much as I loved that, eventually she, we both outgrew it. She grew, grew too big and I grew too weak. Uh, but I remember at one point, I mean, she was pretty big by then, much, much older than any child should ever be when you're on a, a parent's shoulders. But she came to me and said, Dad, um, do you think I could go on your shoulders? She could pronounce it by then. <laughs> but I was like, wait, huh? And I was laughing like, uh, that ship sailed like years ago. She's like, I know, but you think you could do it? 
sure. I mean, I can't lift you up there anymore. You're too long. I'll decapitate myself. But if you stand up on the couch and spread your legs, I'll stick my head through and then try to lift, stand up and, and we might be able to make it. And we did. And it was like old times. I, she weighed too much and I had my back's too weak for me to be able to play like we used to. I'm like, no, I'm just going to stand here and I have to duck down as we get through the, yeah, the door jams. But it was just a fun memory. And to think of the gathering of Israel is not some, some task. It's not some distant project. Like I said, it's a, it's a family reunion and it needs to be personal and relational and intimate where we go and share the gospel with a neighbor or a friend and we just want to throw our arms around them and cast their sins behind our backs. We just want to pick them up and love them into the kingdom of God. Can you imagine a neighbor coming up to you and just saying, shoulders, <laughs> and you, oh, get over here and I just want to carry you back to God. I want to, I want to hold you into his kingdom. And who else is going to be doing it? Kings and queens. People that usually hire out those kinds of load-bearing tasks. Kings and queens that probably have servants for their servants. So surely to, to care for these spiritual infants. Oh no, that's beneath me. Oh no, it isn't. Everybody wants a piece of this action. Everybody wants in on the gathering of Israel. To the point that even kings and queens become what? Nursing fathers. Nursing mothers. Can I give a part of myself, a piece of who I am, to help you become who you need to be? That's the gathering of Israel too. It's so, so beautiful. The chapter then comes to its close in these final three verses. 24 and 5, shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captives delivered? But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. And then verse 26, strange way to end this beautiful chapter. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior, and thy Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Hmm, yikes, Isaiah, strong ending there. Well, okay, yeah, you lived in a, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of culture. But from our kinder, gentler gospel perspective, that, that's kind of strong language. I mean, I, I love the, the very ending. Everyone will know that our God is our Savior and our Redeemer, that He is mighty. So can I hold on to that part and forget what you said right before it? Actually, can I even go a little before that and hold on to that concept? Because 24 and 25 are beautiful. What he asked in that were a pair of rhetorical questions with pretty easy answers. And the questions were, remember, shall the prey be taken from the mighty? And obviously the answer to that is no. I mean, predator and prey, and the predator was mighty, so can the prey be delivered from that? No. Sorry, too late. And then the next rhetorical question, how about the lawful captives? Should those be delivered? Well, now we're getting the human element. It's I, I do want the, those in bondage to go free, right? I mean, we've got to free the slaves. Think about ancient Israel. So that's not what I said. These are lawful captives. Oh, you mean more like convicts? They, they've done something to deserve their imprisonment? 
Yep, they're lawful captives, should those ones be delivered. And again, the answer to the rhetorical question would be no. The law of the harvest, this is justice and it demands that they pay the penalty. So I'm sorry, pray, and I'm sorry, captives, but it's too late for you. Uh, I got the answers right, right? The Lord says in the next passage, well, yes to the rhetorical questions, but let me give you a non-rhetorical answer. And the answer is actually yes. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty? Uh-huh. The Assyrian Empire was mighty, but I'm going to gather scattered Israel out from the four corners of the world. The Babylonian Empire was mighty, but I'll bring Cyrus to make sure that you can come home. But what about those captives that are lawfully captivated? Yeah, that describes all of you. You, you did get what you deserved, and you deserved what you got. It was your wickedness that led to scattering and captivity. But never underestimate my mercy. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. White wool, I am the lamb, I am the good shepherd. I'll carry you home in my arms. Because I love you. Because I know you. Because I understand what you're up against. And I just want you to be comforted. So will the the captives of the mighty be taken away? Yes. Will the prey of the terrible be delivered? Yes. And more than that, the way he ends verse 25, I'm going to contend with those that contend with you. I'm going to fight your battles for you. My, My right hand is still available to hold my sword. But not only will I deliver you, I will save thy children. I care about you so much that I care about the people you care about. And so to anyone who is worried about lost lambs and prodigal children, I'm grateful for a God who loves us, who has them engraven upon the palms of his hands too, who sees their walls as well as ours and in a way wants to break them down so that we can all come back home together. Who hath begotten me these? My friends, I testify of God's goodness, and I see it breathing through chapters like Isaiah 48 and 49. In fact, the way Wilford Woodruff said this, so beautiful. This is from 1896. And he said to an assembled conference, the revelations that are in the Bible, the predictions of the patriarchs and prophets who saw by vision and revelation the last dispensation and fullness of times, plainly tell us what is to come to pass. And then he got really specific. The 49th chapter of Isaiah is having its fulfillment. It's happening as we speak. And this chapter is being fulfilled every time we share the gospel. Every time we, a young woman or young man serves a mission. Every time a senior couple decides to go re-up and go and bless the nations. Chapter 49 is being fulfilled every time we do family history work, every time we go to the temple, every time we do a good deed, every time we perform a ministry and visit or magnify a calling or or say a prayer or repent of our sins because that's gathering us. I love this chapter. I love the 
the promises that it contains. I love its promised fulfillment that we get to be a part of. And I love the fact that the Spirit breathes through these images from Isaiah to reassure us that all will be well. No wonder Nephi turned to these chapters to give his people hope. Have you likened them unto you? Have they been for your profit and learning? Have they given you hope? Have they persuaded you to believe in the Lord your Redeemer? Then, I just, then Isaiah did his work, and Nephi did his work, and I've done my work. More importantly, the Spirit has done his to breathe life into these images and these analogies. I testify the day will come where chapter 49 is fully fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is bursting at the seams. And we who act as a covenant to the people, having performed God's saving work, can, bring, can come to our heavenly parents who look around the, themselves in wonder and awe and ask us, who hath begotten me these? And we re report with rejoicing. Oh, they're, they're all yours. And they always have been. We're just here to bring them home. <laughs>